You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. This morning's detection of an unidentified radio source from deep space can neither be confirmed nor denied. Whatever it is, it ain't local. Position? I checked interferometry somewhere in Lyra, I think. Uh, Vega? Can't be. It's only 26 light years away. I want all these people out of here. You're having sent this announcement all over the world may well constitute a breach of national security. Oh, this isn't a person-to-person call. This may be an announcement to get our attention. The president's called an emergency meeting. You know those interlaced frames that we thought were noise? This says structure. I'm going to recommend to the president that we militarize this project immediately. There's no reason to believe that their, their intentions are hostile. There's no proof of that. Why don't they just speak English? Mathematics is the only truly universal language. Buried within the message itself is the key to decoding it. Those look like engineering schematics, almost like blueprints. It is our belief that the message contains instructions for building some kind of machine. A machine? It might turn out to be some kind of a transport. Transport? The fact is, you don't know what it does. It could be anything. Nobody's saying this is dangerous. They're going to build it. Who gets to go, though? It's complicated, Ellie. Who gets to go? By doing this, you're willing to risk your life. You're willing to give your life and die for this. Why? Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Rob St. Mary is on assignment this week looking for my voice, which I apparently lost in Chicago. Instead, I'm joined by a pair of old friends. They're not really ancient or anything, and they're definitely not ancient aliens. They're friends regardless. First, Ms. Emily Travia of the Feminine Critique Podcast. I'm okay to go. I'm okay to go. And Mr. Jamie Duvall of the Movie Geeks United Podcast. Hopefully, I will not be an awful waste of space. This week, we are talking about Contact, the 1997 film from director Robert Zemeckis. Based on a novel by scientist and humanitarian Carl Sagan, the film tells the tale of Ellie Arroway, played by Jodie Foster. She works at a radio telescope array where she discovers a message from space, being to us from Vega. Is it a message of hope, or does it spell doom for Earth? Before we get down to brass tacks with the plot of the film, I want to ask you, Emily, when was the first time you saw Contact, and what did you think? That would be about six days ago. Wow. Yeah, I had never seen it. It came out when I was probably around 15 or so, so it wasn't like the hot new movie that all the teenagers were running to go to. Uh, and even though I was, I'm always, always have been a science fiction fan, but it's hard to convince like fellow 10th, 11th graders that, oh, let's go see that like thinking man science fiction film. Uh, and then I avoided it afterwards because all I knew about it after it came out was that it was very long and that uh, I kind of knew the ending based on a South Park episode. Or so I thought. I heard the, the South Park spoiler, and ever since then I'm like, well, I know how that movie ends. I'm not going to waste three hours on it. But then I found out it wasn't actually three hours, and the South Park doesn't tell the whole tale, if you will. Yeah, we are going to be getting into some big-time spoilers on here. So if you haven't seen Contact, I would say you can either listen to us and find out everything about the movie or go and watch it. And in a few minutes here, you'll probably know what my opinion of that choice is. But first, Mr. Jamie Duvall, when was the first time you saw Contact? I remember uh, checking it out at the matinee on the second day of release. 
and I uh, thought it was kind of blah. Um, I was a little disappointed by it. It felt like um, he had come off his big success that Mechas had with Forrest Gump, and he was tackling this almost unfilmable project. Uh, and it felt like it uh, was, it felt very flat to me upon first viewing. But then I checked it out again uh, last night, and uh, my feelings about it are somewhat more concrete now. So I want to be completely honest here. When I first saw Contact in 1997, I completely hated this movie. I wrote a a really long screed-type movie review. I don't even know how many words it was, but it just went on and on and on about all of the things I disliked about this movie. And what really kind of prompted this episode, there was a uh, June 26, 2013 Den of Geek article looking back at Robert Zemeckis' contact by uh, a guy named Simon Brew. And it was really kind of like repainting the whole film in this new positive light. And I said, okay, am I wrong about this? Did I really you know, not see this the way that it should have been seen? Should I go back and revisit this? And I went back and revisited it, and I still hate this movie. <laughs> and I feel really bad because there are so many great interviews on this show and I feel really kind of bad because, you know, I managed to talk to some wonderful people about this movie, the people who put their heart and soul into this project. And I don't want to shit all over it. I'm just, so I've been having this crisis of conscience for like months now as we're getting ready to put this thing together. So that's one of the reasons though, because I don't want to be, so if I'm the only guy that doesn't like this, then that's fine. And I think that'll be a, a fantastic discussion. We've had episodes before where I'm the one person who doesn't like something. Like we, we, we did Near Dark a few years ago, and I don't like that movie at all, and I still don't like that movie. And we had some people that love that movie. So if you guys like this movie at all, let me know why I should, because I just don't see anything of value to it and and i can kind of defend my my opinion i'm not just going to say you know this movie's bad and you should feel bad but i want to know if if i should feel bad or not well i i liked it uh i didn't love it i didn't hate it it's one of those movies i could understand a lot of mixed feelings about because I think there are some things that I was really enjoying and drawn to, and it was much more interesting than I thought it would be. I kind of figured this is going to be a really dry or really sappy, cold movie that I'm not going to feel, and I knowing it's it's running length that worried me. But I was I was into it the whole time. I was never bored. I had problems with certain aspects, and I think. I wouldn't be surprised if everybody does. The romance is really bothersome for a lot of reasons, both because I think it doesn't really work and because I think it takes a lot away from both the theme and the story and the characters. And so it feels like, to me, on one hand, it is this uh, kind of a crowd-pleasing film, but it's almost... I almost feel like it's something of a Trojan horse of a crowd pleaser because it's sort of, you can look at it and I think 
people can, uh, I think there's something to it that atheists can really love and Christians can really love, and they can both think they're right about the movie, and nobody has to be angry at each other, because there's a way, this, there's something this movie does where, like, you leave, and I think some people will have one interpretation and others will have other, a different one, and people might not argue about it, and it's very... And I think that's part of Rob Zemeckis, is he makes very crowd-pleasing films. And I think this is that. It just has a little more intelligence, but it's still a little bit weighed down by the fact that it was ultimately going for a mainstream audience. I admire what the movie is about a lot more than how it's about it. Uh, I, I like that it's a movie of great big ideas, and these are ideas that are even more relevant today than they were upon the film's release. We hear Absolutely. about the friction between religion and science uh, very prominently nowadays. Um, I mean, it's there in the whole argument about global warming. You know, I was thinking about global warming as I was actually watching the movie. But how it's about those subjects is very problematic to me. It's very clunky, obvious, very awkward at times. There are caricature performances in the movie that I have a real problem with, uh, that I would have preferred to be much more nuanced. I think that McConaughey is miscast somewhat, and at times I don't feel like Jodie Foster comes through on her performance. So I have a wealth of problems. No problems with the ideology of the movie but problems with its execution i think my biggest problem and i know i should probably you know bury the lead a little bit and and save this for later but i think my biggest problem with this movie is that we have a female protagonist who is undercut at every moment throughout the entire film by every single person she meets and every single person she meets except for one person except for one character is a man jodie foster is surrounded by men who lie to her take advantage of her deceive her just uh, uh, try to murder her you know just <laughs> there are so many bad men in this film but yet they all get away with it and she's the one who's left kind of devastated at the end i mean she is it's kind of a happy ending she's there with some kids around a radio telescope and telling them that they have to be skeptics now because you know she's been tamed it it really feels like this whole thing is the taming of a scientist an atheist scientist into making her into a good christian is what it feels like to me see and that's where it's such an odd duck of a movie because i think that reading is absolutely valid but the flip of that and one thing i don't think we find out in the movie is when they talk about and this is i don't know if this is spoiling too early yet but the 18 hours of footage i'll just say that we find that out as an audience do we know if she ever finds that out well the book the screenplay and the movie are incredibly different and i can get into all that kind of stuff yeah and the screenplay as you'll hear in one of the first interviews here with linda obst just it changed so much over the years and you know, we all know, all three of us here, and probably everybody listening to this podcast knows that screenplays can just die little deaths all throughout a process. And I think that 
the screenplay at one point when it got into the hands of Peter Gruber, who was working at Warner Brothers with Linda, she leaves for a little bit. He basically massacres the script. I think that they were so happy to bring it back to life to some sort of degree that they were just okay with what ended up being on screen. It's because it was so much better than the shit that Gruber had managed to pump out. Oh, from what I think, I can't remember if this was, I had read this or if it was in the interviews, when they talk about at one point in the script, uh, Ellie's character has a teenage son, and it's all about connecting with her teenage son, and in the end she finds out that's what life's about, it's about connecting to to her child, and I guess there's another one where she, the whole time she's trying to conceive, Uh, so I could see why... And again, it's, I'm also thinking in my head, like, well, it's 97, like, which now feels so long ago and wasn't, I mean, not necessarily that today we're so much more advanced with our female characters, but I think the discussion in the last few years has become much more prominent of, you're right, why is Jodie Foster and Angela Bassett, why are they the only female characters? Why isn't there, you know, one female scientist in that entire room just to make it a little less martyr-esque and everything else? I guess I give it leeway for that, even though I shouldn't, because 1997 wasn't that long ago. Emily, are you saying that this movie would flunk the bechamel test? Well, no, it wouldn't. It would actually pass because you have two female characters with names who talk to each other about something other than a man, right? So doesn't that, that it actually does pass. Gravity doesn't pass, keep in mind. Gravity fails it. Okay, so because they talk about where they can buy a pretty dress. They talk dress. about where they can buy a dress, which everybody knows is totally something that you ask a high-ranking Washington official when you're in the room alone with her. If, if I mean, if I have like five minutes alone with Hillary Clinton, we're going to talk about clothes. That's what chicks do. Am I right? God, that hurt Absolutely. just to say. You know, it's interesting because uh, that thought had occurred to me as well, how marginalized she is throughout the movie. I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious. But she also had a role in uh, Silence of the Lambs that had much of that same dynamic. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that was uh, a few years before. So, uh, what did Silence? How did Silence of the Lambs treat that aspect uh, of of her character, the 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 lone female in a traditionally male dominated world, compared to how Contact handles it? I mean, what what's your view on how Silence of the Lambs did that right, Mike? You know, I don't know if it was just that there were more female characters and they were trying to do more. I mean, having, you know, Senator Martin and, and, and Catherine Martin and having uh, Clarice's roommate and, you know, just having some more women around, I think, helped out a little bit. And even though Hannibal Lecter was this great manipulator and really kind of pulling the strings, and Scott Glenn was trying to pull the strings, it felt like she was aware of it. Like, you know, when Dr. Chilton talks to her and says, you know, oh, you know, Jack's really smart sending such a a pretty young student here to see Hannibal Lecter because he hasn't seen a woman in however many years – you know, I, I'm pretty sure that she's aware of how she's being manipulated and how she should be playing this stuff out. But you're right. I was definitely thinking a lot of Silence of the Lambs as I was watching this, especially the slow motion of her running 
to try to get the heart medicine to save her dad and stuff. I was really like the the actress that plays the young Jodie Foster. I was really reminded of that actress who's walking up to the uh, to her father's casket in Silence of the Lambs, and I was like, oh yeah, wow, she really loses parents a lot in these films. She really does. <laughs> like, little girl who's down the lane. Uh, yeah, yeah good it's, call. it's her thing. Call. <laughs> Plus, there's a real clarity in, in an artfulness in how Jonathan Demme expresses that dynamic. I mean, just that one shot alone in Silence of the Lambs where she steps into the elevator and it's just flooded with men, with recruits. Who are, like, two feet taller than she is. Yes. That says a lot more in a single image than... I think context succeeds in expressing. But I will say one thing about context that I do admire, and I think this was the whole point of making the movie. If the movie is dominated by friction between religion and science, uh, then I think at the end, I didn't read it as she she gave up and converted to Christianity. I read it as therein lies the balance between the two, religion and science, what they share in common. They're, they both have a belief in the beyond, that there's something greater out there. Uh, and and I, I have always kind of liked that uh, about the movie, that, that it reaches that conclusion. I can see that. And there's something, because I'm similar, I don't think she ends the movie, uh, you know, a Christian or a believer or anything like that. I think it's more that... Uh, it's like when you deal with atheism, there's the bullheadedness that's really easy to fall into because if you're an atheist, like, you know, like, no, you're an idiot if you think this kind of thing. And as much as like it's everybody's right to believe or not believe that, if you're kind of only seeing something with that very strong filter and you can't understand why somebody might believe, uh, I think there's something... Uh, negative about that because it means you're never going to quite understand a lot of people, and like there's almost a tiny bit of merit. And I, I am an atheist, but I can I can understand when you have this scene where um, you know uh, she's in front of the panel and they're selecting the ambassador to aliens, basically, who is going to be the person that represents the human race. You know, it's actually a good point to say, well, if 95% of the population believe in God, does it make sense to send somebody who's not like 95%? Now, again, looking at it from my point of view, well, of course it does, because she knows what she's doing. She's a scientist. You want somebody bringing who's going to go there and insist upon this belief system that you know was created by men and so on. But the reverse of that is you have to understand what makes somebody do something or you have to just kind of see like okay look i think you're i think you're investing all your attention energy in something that that's not there but let me accept that you do it so i can better know you and i think that's to me that's what it is it's less her believing anything as much as it is her kind of maybe coming to an acceptance that she doesn't know everything I want to kind of steer the conversation into talking just kind of a little bit more of the breakdown of the plot because we're jumping all over Mm -hmm. the place. And just for folks who haven't seen the movie, I just kind of want to give them a little bit more uh, to, to hold on to as we're going through here. The opening shot 
is one of these things that people talk about all the time. You know, it, I think they even talked about it in the uh, Hodorowski Dune thing because it was kind of this ultimate in Dune, the way that Hodorowski described it and the way that it was actually in, in the uh, one of the drafts of the screenplay was we start on the outside of the universe and we go all the way in. It's like the ultimate zoom or ultimate tracking shot from the far reaches all the way into the eye of this little girl. And in the movie, we kind of go the opposite. We start with Earth, and we start with this blast of noise, and we're basically traveling through time, through space, through the radio and television signals that have been sent out from 19, what, 1936 or whatever, when uh, this Hitler broadcast was, going all the way out into the far reaches of space until we reach absolute silence. And I have to say, it's kind of ballsy as far as having absolute silence as we go through the heavens and we're seeing all these spectacular things. And it's, it's a hell of a way to start a movie. Mm-hmm. And then we come out of this little girl's eye and I was disgusted how many times I had to read while I was doing research on this, how they changed the color of the actress's eyes because Jodie Foster has blue eyes and this girl had brown eyes. Well, that's and I was Jenna like, Malone who... And I was, I'm watching this, I'm like, that looks like Jenna Malone, but I'm like, Jenna Malone doesn't have blue eyes. And I'm like, wow, they actually gave this little, like, eight-year-old actress who doesn't look that much like Jodie Foster and who wasn't that famous at the time, they gave her contacts? No, they just spent a lot of money to CGI her eyes. And that, to me, kind of summarizes some of the problems that are wrong with this movie, as far as <laughs> there's an over-reliance on special effects in this film that just really kind of kill me especially as we move more into it especially let me just put this out there the president clinton stuff Mm. kills me okay sorry so we start off with this nice family relationship we've got david morse who's not evil in this film uh one of the few films in which he is not evil he went from playing this really nice guy doctor on uh, St. Elsewhere to playing criminals and creeps in so many movies. And he does it so well, especially, I think, in 12 Monkeys. He's an amazing creep in that film. But in this one, he's a nice guy. My rule of David Morris is he's either... A, he's either like an evil, terrible human being, or he's a, a nice guy who's really ineffectual. He's kind of ineffectual in this film, I would say. He's he's a fairly good teacher, teaching his, his little girl about uh, radios and reaching out to other places. And this kind of is our metaphor that we have here, that she's always looking for signs of intelligent life in the universe and all this. And then we cut to however many years later and now little Ellie is all growing up into Jodie Foster and from there it's kind of a series of her going from one job to another job as funding keeps being cut wherever she's going and it seems like the guy the man behind the curtains is this guy David Drumlin who's played by Tom Skerritt who basically just does not believe in what she's doing. One of the first people who kind of expresses a lot of doubt in, you know, she's putting all of her eggs in this whole SETI basket, search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And gosh, that's just a waste of time. Yeah, there's, there could have been shaving done. <laughs> <laughs> and she also manages to meet Matthew McConaughey around here. 
who is really kind of doing, I think he's kind of doing his Jesus Christ thing. He's got the beard. He's got the long hair. He he manages to woo Jodie Foster really easily. Really quickly, and too. A, yeah, and yeah, they fall into bed really quickly, even after she learns that he's a preacher. He's a man of the cloth without the cloth. <laughs> that was a good uh, impression, too. Subtle. Thank you. Subtle. Thank you. See, I yeah, didn't mind uh, their romance in the beginning, because it was like, okay, that's kind of just setting something up, and it's fine. But it's uh, you, you can keep going, because eventually we'll get to where it starts to bother me. There's absolutely no chemistry whatsoever between the, the two of them, and uh, and and I do think that he is uh, miscast. But there is something zen-like about McConaughey uh, that I could see him stripping naked and playing bongos without any provocation. Yeah, and and, and yes, and that's not what they were going for. So I. I don't think that the, he served the movie very well. But then again, I, I, I don't know that the part is <clears throat> the part feels more like a like a concept, like an idea of a part, more than an actual flesh and blood person. So I, I, I'm not quite sure that any actor would really be able to breathe much life into that. And- Mike, now, do you read the book. Was this character always a love interest, or was he no. at one point? See, that's what I figured. No, no. There is a character missing from this movie. There's a character named Peter Valerian, who the Ellie Arroway character falls in love with, and she's kind of distant and everything. She keeps her she keeps her distance from people because of the loss of her father and you know growing up without a mother. She's always afraid she's going to lose people that she loves in her life. So she tries to keep some distance between her and Valerian. And then he ends up like coming back and seeing her at one point because she's in this remote location. And he's like, you know what? I have fallen in love with somebody else and we're going to, you know, we've moved in together. And it's really kind of a devastating blow. It really, you know, hurts her and again, puts her on the defensive. So she's not about to fall in love with anybody. And yeah, that's in the book, and that's also in the original. Well, I can't say original screenplay, the 1995 screenplay that I read. And then it's kind of weird because there's a a memo, and I God, I love the internet. There's a memo from uh, Anne Dryan and Carl Sagan to the uh, George Miller. It's actually to George Miller, Linda Opes, and Michael Goldenberg uh, from October 6, 1995. And they talk about this and many other considerations prompt us to ask what is gained by having Ellie's pre-Joss relationship be with Valerian rather than Drumlin. Also, if Ellie and Drumlin have been lovers, doesn't Drumlin's death by the Dowell explosion affect her and us more deeply? So they wanted to get rid of Valerian as well, yeah, and have her be with the Tom Skerritt character. And I will say that the Joss, Palmer Joss of the book is about 30 years older, 20 years older at least. He's this uh, guy who was basically like... um, he reminds me of George, uh, what's the guy's name, Stillwell from uh, uh, um, The Dead Zone. 
it, kind of that Martin um, Sheen character where he was a uh, a huckster and a charlatan, and then he uh, gets struck by lightning and has this vision, and that's what turns Palmer Joss into the Man of the Cloth, is that he turns his life around after he survives this lightning bolt. I want to say he even has a lightning bolt tattoo on him or something like that, <laughs> but he was much more, and then he does become this much more respected character and everything. He's kind of one of the few religious nuts out there that actually seems kind of reasonable. And he does have a nice relationship with Ellie and everything, but no romance. So it's like they just wedge that romance into this movie so hard. And got it's rid obvious, of the too. Although yeah, oh yeah. I'm just so happy they didn't go the Christopher Nolan route and have her have had an affair with her boss. That's the Christopher yeah, Nolan this, school of thinking, but but this the, is another awkward part of the, the relationship for me, uh, and this is why it, it almost plays a little creepy because right before they go to bed with each other, McConaughey and Foster in this movie, uh, the inciting incident for that <clears throat> seems to be that uh, he reminds her of her father. Oh yeah. <laughs> Because he uses, out of the blue, the same kind of come, uh, catchphrase that uh, her father used to say to her. That's uh, an awful waste of space. And she looks at him with a recognition of some degree of desire, and then they bump uglies. And it doesn't, it, it, it gives off a very creepy vibe. But if they would have tried to infuse her character with. As, as someone that was self-destructive in her search for a male replacement for what she lost when she was nine, when her father died, maybe that would have played a little stronger. Palmer character, I think, in concept could work, but to me, not as a love interest once you get past a certain point. Because it gets to a point where it's so inappropriate and unbelievable on her part that she would still be risking something with the relationship with him when at that time, like, no, she can't be doing that. But it's also the idea of this kind of more moderate Christian, like, what do they call him? Like the spiritual advisor to the president. That's right. an interesting idea because they do give you the more extreme. You have like Rob Lowe as the sort of um, uh, much like more conservative uh, religious guy there and so the idea that there's somebody who's more a philosopher than a priest I guess uh, there's a lot that could be done with that and I think they give McConaughey certain talking points that the movie kind of needs to say they don't need to say them the way they do but they need to put out there as far as just certain themes but when you then also turn that character into a love interest for a relationship that doesn't work on screen it does take a lot away you're saying, Jamie, that he is disingenuous, that his character doesn't work, all that kind of stuff. I think that really comes from the whole idea of he's just made up for that particular part. He's there to replace Valerian. He's wedged into mm -hmm. this story, and it just doesn't fit. And yeah, her little look to him when he says, you know, all that room, it's a tremendous waste of space. And then, bam, jumping into bed with them, I was like, oh, hello, Electra. <laughs> yeah. The movie does, the movie just, it doesn't need it. And, Agreed. And uh, uh, towards, the, uh, towards the end, 
where he tells her what a remarkable person she is and how much he cares for her. You can't help but think, why? Is there a connection yep. here that we somehow did not pick up on? It's just uh, superfluous, that whole subplot. And it seems to be put there, as you guys have expressed, just because, you know, you can't have a big movie without a love story. People love love stories. Mm-hmm. I do want to say, just touching on the Rob Lowe thing for an instant, mm-hmm. he's there definitely as a counterpoint to Palmer Joss. But to, is he in there just for like the one scene? It seems yeah. like I see him and then he's gone. Which is such he, a waste of Rob Lowe. It's an incredible waste of Ro- Rob Lowe. What a terrible character. Because, I, I mean, that, that character in particular... Uh, I mean, I I'd forgotten Rob Lowe was in the movie, and then he popped up, and I said, "Oh, this might be interesting." But that is that is the biggest caricature in the film. But look at it today. Yes, but and I was thinking about that, and, and I was thinking, well, this probably played as much more of a caricature in '97 because that's kind of the reality of what we're dealing with true, today, especially. True. But uh, but I just it was ridiculous, and I thought to myself, Zemeckis is smart about so many things. It seems like he would he would avoid putting such a stock character, especially in in a film where he was trying to create a reality, uh, an environment in which you felt like this is really happening. I think that was the motivation for using Clinton and not some fake president. That he wanted to you to believe that it was happening in our world that we know. Um, and it was also a chance for him to show off his forced gumpiness with <laughs> visual graphics. Uh, yeah, but Rob Lowe really touched me the wrong way in that movie. I remember him touching a lot of people the wrong way back then. Yes, no way. So we've got Jodie Foster, Ellie Arroway constantly going for these positions and always being undercut by Drumlin. And it looks like she's about at the end of her funding at this one particular radio telescope array. Her struggle is intercut with uh, Drumlin's rise to power. He's now moving more into the political realm. And it's also, we have a Palmer Joss moving into the political realm. Now he's is going to be that advisor, the spiritual advisor to the president. And in the screenplay and in the book, the president is a woman. So we have this pretty strong female character that we then sacrifice for that digital trickery that Zemeckis loves to do with the whole use of the the Clinton stuff. And we get a lot of that because of him shooting screens. We get a lot of not only just Clinton, but we get a lot of times where we have one character on screen and another character next to a screen. It was kind of interesting because I don't know if either of you guys have seen I Want to Hold Your Hand, but that's the same thing in Zemeckis' first directorial debut where he is using the Beatles and he's doing the exact same thing back in the 70s where he's got these out-of-focus Beatles, quote-unquote, and then these close-ups of the monitors from the camera as he's kind of going across, which is a really nice way to make us think that we're actually seeing the Beatles. And he's doing the exact same thing with President Clinton 20 years later and it's like wow okay some old dog no new tricks I like the I get the idea of it but I think it's so distracting it's impossible to watch it and not think wow how'd they get Bill Clinton in this 
it's it's interesting, uh, and I've always been thankful for contact because I play a little movie game where you name two people uh, in in the movies, like say, uh, and you try to connect them in the least amount of movies. And kind of sounds like Kevin Bacon. Yes, and because of that, you could cha- you could say Charlie Chaplin and Bill Clinton, and I'll get it because he's in contact, which I think is great. But uh, beyond that, is it just me or the the visual effects? Uh, the visual effect of placing Clinton in the movie. Obviously, that's from a real address he made to the press. Was that uh, address actually made outdoors? Because I was looking at how it's done visually, and it looks like they kind of rotoscoped him out from an outdoor speech and placed him in the press room in the White House. He's got, like, sunlight on his face. They didn't even do the necessary kind of color correction to make it look uh, like he's indoors. So it's no small coincidence that Ellie's just about to have her funding cut when all of a sudden the humpback whale probe from Star Trek IV returns and is sending the signal to the radio array saying, where are the humpback whales? Because that's the only thing I can think of when I hear that weird noise that is is coming through the radio telescope. Did anybody else pick that up, or was that just me being a complete nerd? Now that you've said it, now that's what I hear, but it didn't come at the time. They're broadcasting this signal apparently to the people who weren't able to get into Twister because we have like the other geeks that weren't part of the tornado chasing that were in Twister are in this movie. And we have just this a, a tremendous geek squad of all these guys and their Hawaiian shirts and their kooky things. And uh, the only good one of all of them i think is william fitchner who we'll hear from a little bit later and unfortunately they gave him the worst name uh, you could ever give a character his name is kent clark what the fuck man <laughs> i guess somebody was a superman fan and thought it was cute it was Kent colors in the script they cha- i mean there's so many things that they change from script to the like as I'm doing my research on this and I'm talking to the people, you know, and I'm talking to, to Jim V. Hart again, we'll hear from him a little bit later on. I'm just like, who's the guy that screwed the pooch on this script? Was it you? You know, who, who is this? And I'm thinking, okay, well, if it's not him, then it's got to be Michael Goldenberg because he came after him or, or somebody else. And yeah. It had to be somewhere after this draft of the script, which it's still not the best script in the world, but it's somebody between then and when the movie comes out who makes all these weird-ass choices like Kent Clark. (laughs) Like I was saying, the president now is 
Bill Clinton, so we can't necessarily have any scenes with Bill Clinton, which are not coming from already sourced stuff. So they basically break Bill Clinton up a little bit into Angela Bassett and a little bit into James Woods. So it's just bizarre how they, they decided to make these changes and then they get rid of that Valerian character. But anyway, I'm, I'm getting off the, uh, the, the track here. The signal comes through. We got prime numbers. We find out that this whole signal is uh, a palimpsest. There's just all of these things coming through these this signal. So you got the there's a television broadcast to let us know that the aliens have received our television broadcast. There's um, the the prime numbers themselves, and then there's machine directions on how to build this massive machine to take uh, one of us to some place and we don't know what it could be a doomsday machine we really don't know and so we've got uh when the message comes out that's when james wood shows up and suddenly is like this is a whole you know huge violation of national securities the national security advisor and james woods just seems like such a one-note character to me in this just like jimmy can you play dick all right do it Mm -hmm. all the way yeah and especially Again, not to jump ahead to the end scene, but when there is that reveal where it is kind of just like, a, oh, so you really are a jerk. Like, you, you knew about this, huh? Kind of thing. It, it's an easy route for a screenplay to take, I guess. I completely agree. There are, there are several one-note characters in the movie, and the, the Rob Lowe, uh, James Woods, and... Um, you know the the little bit that uh, which I'm sure you're about to get to the little bit that Jake Busey is on screen. Uh, I mean, uh, and and you know both he and James Woods. I'm surprised that they weren't like you know licking their lips and twirling their mustache. I mean, it was it was that obvious. Well, Jake Busey it, it just is so wonderful in so many movies, especially um, <laughs> Starship Troopers. But I was really reminded of his role in The Frighteners in this one. And I kept expecting him to like turn into a shadow or something and, and you know creep up on Jodie Foster. Again, at the same time, it, it's like it, especially as soon as he sees Jake Busey, there's something very like, oh, well, he's gonna do something. It's Jake Busey. But the flip of that is that character is not so hard to believe. I think, unfortunately. No, no. I mean, if he wasn't out there protesting the message and then later the machine, he'd probably be out there shooting up a Planned Parenthood. Exactly. What do you guys think about the John Hurt character? John Hurt is the man who's behind the curtains. He's the guy who's pulling all the strings and basically giving Dorothy the key of how to get to Oz. He just, it's a strange character to me, and I have yet to decide whether I like him or whether I think that he's just like this deus ex machina. It's a good question, and I think I'm in the same boat as far as it's John Hurt. So if you can put John Hurt in your movie, why would you not? Uh, There is something to him always showing up or his money always showing up whenever the movie kind of needs it. That that's, That is easy and is, again, a very plot-required character, less a character-required character, if that makes sense. But at the same time, I think there's... I, I can kind of understand why he's there because I feel like that's one more type of 
person to put in this where you have, you know, you have the kind of Christian believers and then you have someone like Drumlin who is kind of just saying whatever needs to be heard just to, for personal advancement. You have the, you know, Jodie Foster who just doesn't believe anything. And then you have him who's sort of like a wild card in there where he kind of believes in her and believes in, I guess, this kind of advancement and this idea that there's something greater out there, but that, again, that it's not a Christian God or not a kind of defined God, that it's, you know, hey, we can we can maybe find it and we have all you need is money to do it, so let's do it. Yeah, I mean, I just took him as a necessary evil. I, 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 I mean, when the... Uh, that she had to reach out to the private sector to, uh, you know, the only an eccentric billionaire would be crazy enough to uh, invest in her ideas. And uh, that's, that's the albatross that she has to, uh, to live with in order to, uh, to uh, pursue her work. I had to say it's so creepy though when he meets her the one of the times and starts doing like the this is your life and he's got like childhood film stock of her. What is going on? Wait, you don't have a wealthy benefactor who sat you down in his private jet one day and did that? No? What's Jamie, you? No? That's like not norm that's not a thing. Oh, okay. Is that just you? I I well me and Jody Foster, apparently. Wow. Hey. I, speaking of shitty of special effects, as we were, the special effect of John Hurt flying in space, probably some of the worst effects I've seen. <laughs> that reminded me of like a video toaster effect that I might have done like making a music video in like 1992 or something. John Hurt, let's just stretch your arms out in front of this blue screen. And then I can take this control knob and just turn it, and there goes the background, and now let's move you through. Yes. So that's what it reminded me of. I was more disturbed by his bald cap. Those big glasses kind of got me, too. Yeah, there was something very un-John Hurt-like about his appearance that was disturbing. John Hurt, I don't know. I guess he's the devil you know rather than the devil you don't know. Um and it is weird because he just keeps showing up and he keeps getting farther and farther out from Earth. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he's uh, on a plane that lands at one point and she gets aboard. And then another point, she goes up to visit him in a space station. Uh, yeah, great. So, and, and I love the way that he can take over like television signals like Lucy or like Andrew McCarthy and Pretty in Pink. You know, it's just like he, he just has incredible powers like that he can make computers do things that they can never actually do. Beauty of being rich, I think. I guess so. I guess so. And then we get into what I consider to be the biggest drag of the movie is this whole idea of who's going to go into space and we go into this whole thing of trying to find out who the right people are. And really to me, it seemed like there were only two candidates when, you know, well, okay, let me say this in the book, there's five seats. So there is a selection process for the five seats, five seats, much easier to fill. And, you know, we've got representatives from all over the world and there's this whole debate about who should go who should not go all this kind of stuff 
and then it's kind of taken down to one seat in the screenplay. But again, it's like 10 people are vying for this thing. It kind of reminded me a little bit of Armageddon, you know, where they have this like montage of them, like putting these people through like the, the paces of the machines and all this kind of stuff, putting them in the, um, what's that thing that they have in, um, uh, spies like us or uh, the throw up machine and the throw up machine. So they have all that kind of stuff and they have all these congressional hearings and all these kind of things. And then they narrow it down and yeah, Ellie gets up there and she says her thing. Drumlin gets up there. He says his thing, which basically is just, you know, sucking everybody's dick. Like I'm the perfect <laughs> candidate because I've listened to everybody else. And here's my perfect response that I've catered for everyone. And I will say that this is my, one of my most troubling things in the in the movie is when they go to make the selection and Palmer Joss stands up there. Palmer Joss, the man who allegedly loves Jodie Foster for no good reason, stands up there and says, I just couldn't in good conscience vote for a person who doesn't believe in God. Someone who honestly thinks the other 95 percent of us suffer from some form of mass delusion basically just assassinates her chance of doing the one thing that would fulfill her completely and just says you know what fuck you you're not going into space because you don't have my same beliefs and the, well the worst thing about that to me that's not the problem because i believe that a guy like that would say that and would feel that way. The problem is, then he says to her in private, I really just didn't want you to go. Like, he really just doesn't want to lose her selfishly. Right. And she's still into it. And that's where I'm like, oh, girl, come on. You're Jodie Foster. You're, you're pretty good looking. You can, you can do better. No matter who it is, you can do better. Yeah, there's so many unnecessary plot points in this movie. And, and there's also the... There's also the tendency that the movie has to want to, it, it feels overstuffed. So, you know, you have to have the religion and the science thing, you have to have the love story, you have to have conflicts where the movie would be a lot cleaner if there weren't conflicts of that sort. You have to have the echo of the Challenger disaster. You know, you, you, it's like they're crossing off a list of, of every, every single uh, possible uh, plot point that they can stuff into this movie. As a result, all the dominoes fall. I mean, none of it really comes through as, as strongly as they probably hoped it would. And I wonder if, I mean, this was a big budget. Mike, I don't know if you know the number of the budget, but it was a high-profile, big-budget film. You're hiring people like Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey. And had it not had to make $300 million, I think it would have, maybe they would have been able to tear some of it down and decide, you know, we don't need a romance, so let's not have one. But I do wonder how much of it is purely, okay, we're making a studio film that's opening on a big weekend. Uh, we're putting McConaughey and Foster in there. So, guys, where's the romance? I'm, I'm not seeing the romance in here. And it's, it's a shame because I think if you took that out, I think the film would be so much stronger. You know what I think it is? I, I think it's Zemeckis. I think it's he's coming off of Forrest Gump. 
he can do anything he wants. He says something to the effect of, I want to do something that's been impossible. You've been trying to do this for uh, a dozen years. I think Contact started as a screenplay. I think George Miller was originally attached mm -hmm. to it. And uh, they could not break it. I think he had all the toys in the sandbox because he'd made such a huge hit. And he said, I'm the one to do it. Uh, and I, I, you know, it, it feels like, you know how those great 70s directors, from Scorsese to McDonovich to Friedkin, all of them, uh, they all uh, met their demise with their one big ego project. That's kind of what Contact feels like to me in, in terms of Zemeckis' <laughs> career up to that point. Well, I have to say, if this was his Heaven's Gate, he definitely bounced back from it, because uh, according to the source of all knowledge, which is Wikipedia, it had a $90 million budget, and it made $171 million. So it, it didn't double its money, but it came pretty darn close. All right, forget everything I just said. <laughs> well, but I'm going to say, it wasn't the runaway hit that Forrest Gump was. And it wasn't even, you know, well, it was no Back to the Future, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, not even, well, Death Becomes Her, I think, might have been considered a flop, but I actually consider it to be a better movie, <laughs> even though her. that movie was changed completely in the editing. Yeah, I'm not even talking about the, the, uh, the financials, how much money it made. I'm talking about the ego getting in the way of clean storytelling, of of thinking that just because you can do everything doesn't mean you should. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just because you can put Bill Clinton in your film doesn't mean you should. There were so many points listening to the audio commentary from Jodie Foster where she was talking about not just Jenna Malone's brown eyes into blue, but just like, you know, oh, well, we shot this. This was the one clear day, but then we had to make it rain. Or all these other days were rainy, and we had to fix it in post to make it bright and sunny. Or the radio telescope was really dirty, so the effects guys were like, don't worry, we'll clean it up, and it'll look beautiful. And it doesn't come through. It, it, it just it – is, it's special effects before the story sometimes. And it really so much leads into – the part that we're going to talk about in a second here as far as the destruction of the first machine and then the second machine and the whole trip through. And I have to say that when she makes it to her final destination, I mean, I know there's supposed to be a look of irreality to it, but it just looks crappy. It looks me. like a uh, screensaver. It does. <laughs> it looks so bad. And, you know, again, it was this whole thing of like, oh, well, we made the waves go backwards on this beach. And it was like, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> Just why did it have to look so bad? Why does it have to look like Jodie Foster and David Morse are standing in front of a blue screen? Well, they were. But why? why? Just go to a fucking beach and shoot this thing. You know, when the movie came out, in terms of the ending, the main complaints I heard uh, revolved around the ending. Did you ever see that movie, Contact? That movie was terrible! Waited through that entire movie to see the alien and it was her goddamn father. The movie has kind of such a build-up where you're waiting for them to reach this destination. What the heck is out there? 
And uh, I think that's just impossible to to reward. I mean, I, I felt the same thing with the movie like Sphere, where you're spinning the whole movie saying, what the hell is going on? To, to such a degree that, you know, what possible explanation could satisfy you? That being said, I actually liked that she saw her father there. And most people, if my recollection is most people at the time of its release thought that was pretty lame. But I thought that that returned it to an emotionally true place. Because there's the my favorite moment in the movie, and it's a button-pushing moment, and I'm a sucker for those kinds of things, I admit it, is after her dad dies, and she's speaking on the radio, and she's calling out for her father, and then the camera kind of does a pan back in Silvestri's main theme, which, that's my favorite part of the movie, is Silvestri's score, that starts to cut in. I'm a sucker for that kind of stuff. So it made perfect sense to me, emotionally, that, that she would be greeted by her father at the end. The, the thing that you're talking about uh, with her calling out on the radio is preceded by her the day of her father's funeral and this priest coming up and trying to give her some comfort, you know, and talking about God's will. And that moment should be a lot more powerful. Like that should be the moment to me where she rejects mm. any kind of organized religion. Mm. Yes. And, and it doesn't hit me, doesn't hit me as powerful at all with that. You're right. You know? I mean, I don't want the little girl to say, like, well, screw you, father. You don't know what you're talking about. But at the same time, this little girl just lost her dad. And this guy's like, you know, hey, it's God's will. If I could get real emotional about something like that, whether it's somebody telling me it's God's will or, hey, these things happen or your father's in a better place or any of those kind of platitudes, you're so emotionally pent up at that that time when a loved one, especially your only parent, has passed away, you're, you know, th- there should be a little bit more of an emotional release there. Yeah, I mean, I guess I buy that just, you know, she's already kind of shut down and shut out people. And I think there's almost, I kind of like that it just puts that out there because that's the kind of thing that a lot of, like, devout Christians will say when something like that happens. And, I mean, I'm saying this today, and say it was the day that the Daily News, New York Daily News, which is not a liberal paper, their headline was, you know, God isn't fixing this about shootings. And so there is that just very, like, that's what you hear from Christians when something happens. You hear that, like, oh, it's, you know, God is the plan. And... I was okay with there not being a reaction to it because I feel like the film is kind of kind of letting you, as a viewer, have your own reaction to that. When I was looking up some things about the movie, I was curious to see, like, uh, you know, what is kind of the consensus on if it is an atheist film or a Christian film. And it's really funny how divisive and how some people will argue to nail and teeth that it's atheist and others will do the same saying that it proves that there is a God. And what's really funny is reading the Christian write-ups about the movie where they're just blasting it for being so anti-Christian. And that's one of the things they bring up is like, Oh, and this priest who doesn't know how to read priests. It's like, really? That's what every priest I've ever met has said in a case like that. Carl Sagan and Anne Ryan, very famous for being atheists, but really I think, 
Carl Sagan in in contact, he comes off as being much more agnostic. And at the end of the book, I'll I'll talk about that in a little bit because it differs greatly. And it seems to kind of I don't want to say it would placate Christians, but it definitely plays more into their camp a little bit. So we'll talk about that. But the one thing I want to talk about right here is this whole idea of the destruction of the machine. So we've got the machine is now being built. They've got David Drumlin, Tom Skerritt is going to be their candidate, send him out into space. The major change that happens here, um, so in the screenplay, when the machine is destroyed, Jodie Foster is already long gone. She jumped in her car, drove 200 miles. She's at this bar getting a beer, and she hears this explosion, hears this noise, feels the ground rumbling, and the the uh, Gary Buse, or sorry Jake Busey character who has sabotaged the machine causes this explosion that wipes out 200 miles around it. It is just this tremendous explosion. All of ground control is gone. They do not exist anymore. The explosion in the book, much less. It, it ruins the machine for sure, but it's much less. Ellie is actually there. She is still part of the crew. You know, she's not the crew crew, but she's part of the ground control type thing. And she's there. When Drumlin recognizes that something bad is about to happen, he actually pushes her out of the way, sacrificing himself. And that's the one good moment that David Drumlin has in the entire book. And it redeems his character. And poor Tom Skerritt doesn't get that. He's a dick all the way through the end. <laughs> He dies a dick. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I feel like that's just one of those, you know, I don't necessarily expect uh, completely three-dimensional characters that are villains in a movie like this. So I just, yeah, of course he's a dick. But that's a shame because they, I mean, this took so much effort to put together and there were so many years of preparation behind it. Give some depth to your characters. Give some sense of of arc and humanity to to these characters in the movie that that come across as, as so one dimensional. Uh, that always aggravates me that there's so many bright people involved and so much hard work and effort and thought, but you forget about <laughs> the most important thing: creating characters that uh, an audience can can empathize with. Haddon steps in again. Hey, don't worry. We've made another machine. Let's put you on this thing, shoot you off into space. We got the same people from ground control. Everything's great. Let's, it takes forever for this thing to happen. And they finally get ready to send her out into space. William Fitchner returns. He keeps popping in and out of this movie. I kind of wish he was more of a presence in here. I agree. He can hear what nobody else can hear because he's a blind guy, so he's magic. So he can hear everything. Oh, it works. Totally. I, I know. I saw the Mark Singer movie. I know that even blind people can drive. <laughs> if you could see what I hear... She goes off into space, travels through space, finds this whole series of wormholes going in and out all over the place. At one point, I think she passes by Deep Space Nine. She moves all the way past this stuff, ends up blacking out. Bam, she's on a beach. Her dad's there. Hey, I'm really not your dad. After you have this emotional release, then let me tell you that I'm actually not your dad. Yet another man being deceptive to her. In the screenplay, 
she actually uh, the 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 Ted Arroway character, the David Morris guy, he changes shapes a few times, and he manages to change shapes into all of the male characters <laughs> that are in the movie. Pretty much, he goes Peter Valerian, Palmer Joss. I think he's Kits. He's Haddon at one point, and then he goes back to Ted. I'm just like, oh my god, you are just completely defined by all the men in your <laughs> life. You know. No, no Angela Bassett, because Angela Bassett didn't exist, because it was the, the president. He does not turn into the female president. Okay. And you know, female president, still a sign of science fiction. So far, yes. Yes, we can still have that. Obama took away the black president from us, but now we at least we got the woman president. You see one of those, you know you're in a sci-fi world. Hold on tight, boys. Whew. Emily, I have to ask you, are you pretty much defined by all the men in your life? Like, if you were to travel to another world, would there be any women that might show up and talk to you at all? Well, I I mean, I think the obvious answer is no, right? Okay. Yeah, well. I mean, even, like, I have cats that are male and female, but I'm assuming I'm only going to see the male cat when it comes to somebody really important. You wouldn't see your boss because there's no way your boss could actually be a woman, right? No. Yeah. Um, no, no teachers or anything. No, no, no teacher no, has ever been been a female. No effective teacher has always ever been a female. No. Yeah, Mr. Holland. Uh, no. Um, I'm sure you don't even have any female friends. Oh, it, well, no. I mean, that's why I have to wait until my meeting with the press secretary to find out what to wear. That's the only. I keep her on speed dial, but it's purely to talk about shoes. Oh, good, good. Jamie, any any women might show up if you were to be stranded on an alien beach. Oh God, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie's like, yeah, the Swedish bikini team. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, 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 you know, frankly, uh, uh, only women would be great. I mean, just you know, just every, every woman I've ever had any kind of thought uh, of desire for that would be great. But in all seriousness, are you defi- if if you were to look at your life and how you've been defined, all men, all women, mix of both, maybe? Got to be a mix. It's it, to me, it's not even. I mean, I'm from a two. You know, I still have my mother. I still have my father. I have brothers and sister and a sister, and it, it's. It is. It's what it is. An issue I have a lot with film and TV is that, uh, and there's that wonderful Gina Davis documentary, um, what was it called? Miseducation, was that it? Where, you know, she talks about that and about, like, all these movies where you just, for whatever reason, there can only be one female. And it, 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 it always bothers me. Uh, I don't think Contact, by any means, is the worst example of it. Uh, I would look at any Christopher Nolan film as a far worse kind of way of looking at that, where a woman can only be one thing, and you can only have one woman to represent all of those things. Um, so yeah, it's it's annoying, I would say, but again, I just, I've seen so much worse that I guess I don't find contact as offensive, but again, as soon as we get back to talking about the Matthew McConaughey romance, then I do start to, you know, realize that I'm gripping a table very tightly. I don't know, is there, is there some track record of sexism in, uh, Zemeckis' work, or is this kind of the oddball? Going back to Forrest Gump, I won't say that this is necessarily sexist, but I will say that Forrest Gump is, to me, very much a right-wing treatise. 
and he rejects he rejects that. By the way, he thinks Zemeckis thinks that's a ridiculous notion. <laughs> ah, but it just seems so obvious to me, just so completely obvious. I mean, Forrest does whatever he's told. You know, when he's told to run, he runs the best. He, you know, gets the job. He goes to, uh, uh, he goes in the army. He does everything that he's told to do as, as, and is a good soldier, is a good person, comes out, you know, gets the, the, the job on the boat, you know, does this, does that, everything. Meanwhile, Jenny, as this free spirit, she's constantly being punished over and over from the beginning of her life. She's punished by having this horrible stepfather just over and over and over again. And she's the one person who's trying to do new things. And she ends up getting AIDS and dies. Well, as you do. So I don't know. I just, I, I see that as being like, listen to what you're supposed to do and you'll do fine. If you go outside of the norm, yeah. you are an oddball and you should be punished. And that's there, and with, the Tom, can... that's there with the Tom Skerritt. I mean, with the Tom Skerritt character, it's, uh, you know, he, he knows that he has to fall in line to get the reward. Yeah, and he'll do anything he can. He'll say anything. He'll fuck over anybody in order to get that. And yes, he's kind of punished. And he is kind of punished by a quote-unquote messenger of God. But I don't know. I just don't. I think it's too little too late. Mm. I mean, he does He does say to Jodie Foster, like, it kind of, he kind of says to her, you know, it kind of sucks that I got away with this, essentially. You know, he does admit that, which... Makes me like him a tiny bit because at least he's aware enough of it, but it's you know still kind of. And I think with Zemeckis, I feel like it's one of the cases where I don't know that he's it's intentional. I think it's you know, and I've seen, uh, and this is something that I would say for like Zack Snyder too, where Zack Snyder thinks I love strong women, so I'm going to make a movie about strong women, and it's and I'm a feminist, and then he makes mm-hmm. Sucker Punch, and he doesn't understand why feminists get pissed off. It's not that we have a problem with, you know, cute girls beating things up. It's that we have a problem with, so they're getting raped while this is happening, and that's okay, and all these other things. And it's, I think, in his heart, he means well. And I think the same with Zemeckis. I think there's something to him thinking, okay, well, my heroine, my, you know, the hero of this movie is a woman, and she is strong and she is smart and she is capable and she works hard and I think the intention behind that is noble it's just then not realizing that all these other things around it that are problematic so you don't think that uh, because this is an interesting topic when it comes to this movie and we've been touching upon it throughout the show you don't think that he was trying to make a statement about if you're a woman if you happen to think outside the norm, uh, if you don't conform, then you're going to suffer the consequences. You don't think he was trying to make a statement about that uh, and the the unfairness of that. Well, I think it's that that's there as far as, you know, there is going to be this kind of stigma attached to you, but I don't think he's punisher, punishing her for it. By the end of the movie she is rewarded for everything she's worked for and for still believing it. And even though there's problems in the details of this Hollywood happy ending where she has to end up with the guy, 
I think, you know, she does get this experience and she does, you know, she ultimately knows that this experience was real and she she has a happy ending, even though, again, there's details to that that are problematic. But I think she is punished in the movie, but I don't think in the end we're supposed to feel as though... Uh, she had to be, she was supposed to be punished, I guess. I kind of agree with you, Jamie, all the way up until your last statement, as far as like Zemeckis making a statement about, you know, if you step outside of the norm, if you, if you're a nonconformist, all this kind of stuff that it's, that I think he almost thinks that it's fair that you are punished at the end. I don't see him necessarily making a strong statement that what has happened to Ellie is unfair. I think there's a compromise at the end as far as her being back at the radio telescope and, you know, with the kids and then having that long moment of her next to the canyon and looking at the star stuff in her hands and seeing the sprinkles and turning to night and all this kind of stuff, this kind of weird denouement of the film. I think he thinks that she's fine, but I can see her being in a much better place at the end of the film, especially so Jodie Foster comes back after her big journey and she's put on trial basically, you know? And, and to me, this is again, a horrible part of the film where it's everybody just calling her hysterical, you know, well, you know, you went, you're missing your father and, you know, what, Hey, now you see him in heaven and, you know, isn't everything that you're saying basically the same thing as mental illness. And, you know, you profess to have no faith in our God, but now we're supposed to have faith in you. This doesn't make any sense. And then the thing that kills me is when she walks out of that courtroom after basically being humiliated is that she gets into the car and it's still Palmer Joss, Matthew McConaughey on the outside of the car and him talking about how they have different means of faith and then him looking up, you know, almost into the sky, but looking around and saying, I believe her. And that's like supposed to placate everybody. <laughs> that's the vindication, yeah. yeah. And him having the final word mm. in that whole arc to me is is a shameful thing. I don't think that he should be the one having the final word, but he is the man. He's the figure of authority. Okay. And yeah. if he and says it, thing. it like, should be good enough for you. Yeah. He, it, but, and I, like, I almost think as much as I agree, like it's right. Like it's not his decision to make to exonerate her, but the flip of that is, I guess I still see this movie as being this sort of, mainstream, we're going to appeal to the conservatives, and we want to try to make some kind of point. And you know what? They're going to hear him. They're not going to hear her. If she walks into that limo and says, look, I'm not backing down. I know what happened. Uh, that audience is going to be like, oh, she doesn't know what happened. But if Matthew McConaughey, as the religious character, says, I believe her, and it's horrible to say, and I don't agree with it, but I almost wonder... You know, maybe I'm giving it, giving Zemeckis and the screenwriters too much credit, but is this sort of placating the people that may have been, and I guess what I mean, is this placating the Christians who may have been swayed to, to kind of further say, like, see, guys, maybe it's not so different. Maybe you should open your minds a little bit. 
from a financial standpoint, it'd be a horrible mistake to to spend so much money on a movie and 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 uh, alienate such a significant pop. Surely, ninety five percent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how they they made Passion of the Christ and uh, Kirk Cameron Saving Christmas a success, didn't they? <laughs> And remember when Passion of the Christ came out, how big that movie was? Ooh, yeah. Jeez. And, and, a movie and Robert, and Robert, shot in Aramaic can and, break the box office. Yeah, and Zemeckis has clearly taken lessons from Kirk Cameron in this movie. But I, <laughs> I, I just have a um, hard, I don't know, it seems inconceivable to me that Zemeckis, and especially Jodie Foster, would agree to do a movie whose final message is women should know their place. Mm. Yeah. I, I will say that if that is not the message that they were going for, that's still the message I receive. You know, that's the, the series of prime numbers that are coming through the headphones for me (laughs) is this whole thing of women listen to the men in your life or else you're going to get in trouble. I guess where I see it is that, because I can see that being there, but then I think, but that's not the ending. Then there's a little bit of a coda where you see that, you know, Ellie is still researching and she's still sharing her experience and everything. And it's almost that thing that, you know, happens to a lot of women where you get to a point where you're like, yeah, sure, you have the last word, okay. And you let them think they do, and then, you know, you turn around and you, you know that you won, or you know that uh, that's not the case. Like, I wonder if maybe that's what that is, that it doesn't matter if, you know, if the president and if the, you know, if Congress and whoever else is on that McCarthy panel, they're going to believe whatever they're going to believe, no matter, and nobody, especially this, you know, tiny intellectual woman is going to sway them, then maybe is, is that the point of like, well, you know what, it doesn't, ultimately, I don't care what you believe. I know, I know myself and I know, you know, what I'm capable of and what the universe is capable of and all that. Maybe that, that's also probably the ending I wanted to see because I didn't want to end this two and a half hour movie feeling as though it, you know, punched my vagina for, for perhaps, <laughs> So yeah, I think that's where I kind of take in like, well, maybe, and it sounds the Lambs does this too. When you think about it, there's so much in that movie where Jodie Foster is smarter than the men around her. And this actually comes up more in the movie Hannibal than anything, where it's so overwrought and, you know, Ray Liotta's character is so ridiculously misogynist and everything. But there's also that like, look, I don't have to prove to you that I'm smart and powerful and all of these things. I just have to know it myself. So I guess I give it a little bit of leeway kind of with that interpretation. That's true. She does go to Jamie Gum's house. She's the one who finds yep. it, not not Jack and his boys. Yeah. And I mean, she doesn't get, you know, at least in the movie, she doesn't get a medal for it. She just graduates her class the way she would have. And that, but that's, you know, she doesn't need that reward because she knows and she's proven herself. Also, the the kid at the very end, the kid that says something to the effect, of, "Is are there aliens up there? And she says, you know, if there's not, it's an awful waste of space. And she puts the hat on the child. Is that child male or female? Oh, I don't That's remember. a good question. I 
don't Take remember seeing their face or body really, just kind of more of a, you know, this hat's going on to a child. Okay. Because yeah, if, if I had to if put it was, money on it, I think it was a boy. Okay, because if it was a girl, maybe you could make up a, 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 a wrap the movie in a little bow, but you'd mm-hmm. really have to use your imagination for this to say that, you know, she's kind of shepherding a future generation of, of female scientists, and, and perhaps her path will be much easier. Yeah, and that would have been a much, a very smart and simple decision to make. And instead, she kind of just says, you know, keep searching for your own answers, which that to me is another one of those placating statements where it's just like, hey, we don't care where what faith you are. You just have to have faith. And that to me, the whole question of faith and belief, it doesn't have to be exclusionary. You know, and there seems to be such tension in this film, to me at least, between faith and science. And really, it's all about belief, you know, and and respect. And I got that a lot more from the earlier versions of this than I ended up getting in Zemeckis, because to me, it feels like the final movie, it feels like a binary. Either you believe in God or you don't believe in God. Either you're wrong or you're right, you know, and there's no shades of gray. And even though Palmer Joss and her get together at the end, kind of, but then you never see him again. In that denouement, right. he's gone. See, I really do feel like there's a, they find that balance, though. Mm. And that's, that was my interpretation of it. They find that common ground between religion and science. I, I will say it's one of the more clunky moments of the movie um, and shows you how obvious the movie is throughout so much of it. When she's talking to the committee and the person on the committee says... There's no evidence of this or that, and he says, and it focuses on Jodie Foster as he says, "Are you saying that you want to take, you want us to take everything you've been saying?" And then it cuts to a close-up of the committee guy, and he says, "On faith." That's <laughs> <laughs> like we got to cut to this close-up just so you to make sure that you get the point of what he says. Right. Well, and you have that conversation very early in the film with her and Matthew McConaughey. Where when she's saying, like, how do you believe in, you know, how do you dedicate your life to this God that you have no way of proving? And he brings up that, like, that question that doesn't really answer or trying to pair the question, which is, did you love your father? Yes, I did. How can you prove it? And it's an interesting thing to float into the conversation because it's you know, that idea of, of, well, there's other, you know, what does it mean then? Is that a matter of faith? Is this, is that? And to me, it's not. To me, that's a, it's not the same thing as saying I'm going to live my life according to the rules of something that nobody can in any way suggest is real. But I guess it's more the, it's a different definition of faith being, you know, can you trust something that you can't touch and that you can't do a mathematical equation and say, yes, that's it. And to me, like, that's where she's at in that, where it's not that she's believing in God or saying that, but she's making that uh, comparison of, you know, I had an experience and you know, just like I loved my father, I know this happened. But it's 
it's messy and not perfect, and I don't know if it's supposed to be or not, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a strong thematic ending. All right, so let's take a break, and I'm going to play a pair of interviews. The first is with Linda Opes, the close friend of Mr. Sagan's and the producer of Contact, Interstellar, and a ton of other films. And then we'll hear from Seth Shostak, a SETI scientist. When did you first meet Carl Sagan? Well, that's an easy question. I, of course, finding the year will take me to uh, asking Annie, who unfortunately can't be with us today. But it was uh, in the 1980s, 1970s, right about the time they were starting to think about the Voyager, right before they were starting to think about the Voyager mission. It was at Nora Ephron's house. She gave a dinner party. And it was the same night Annie met Carl. Annie met Carl and I met Carl on the same night. That's why we'll have to get the year from Annie. Maybe it was 1978, and then I'll get to uh, validation on that. I'm absolutely terrible at calendars. But Annie and I are doing a movie about this, so we'll, we'll get you literal validation on this. Where was I in my career? I was um, working at the New York Times as a an senior editor at the Times Magazine. So you hadn't even gone into the Hollywood stuff yet? Not yet, no. When did you make that transition from going from New York Times to working as, what was it, a D-girl, a development girl? That's right. Um, soon after, about three or four years later, my ex-husband told me, uh, woke me up one day and said, guess what? <laughs> I have a job in Hollywood, and you're going too. <laughs> and uh, I was um, quite surprised, not necessarily enthused, but I had just had a baby, so I had to go. And since I was a newspaper woman, but I didn't want to cover fires and earthquakes and um, mudslides, um, at one of my beats at the Times had been Hollywood, so I was offered a job by a fellow named Peter Goober to be a development girl, to be a D-girl. And at that time, I was sitting behind my rather ornate desk, uh, certainly ornate compared to the New York Times where the desks were gray, like everything else at the gray lady. I was sitting there trying to figure out what on earth I could make a movie about. And at the same exact time, Carl and Annie had moved to Hollywood for a period of time to start Cosmos. And they were my best company. So I used to hang out at their house, uh, the Cosmos house, we called it. It was a little yellow house on Sierra Madre in Hollywood. And I used to go there all the time when they were making Cosmos. And, um, and I asked Carl if he had an idea for a feature film. And he said, yes, I do, in fact. I have harbored one for a long time, and that was the beginning of Contact. So it was a film project first before it was ever a novel. It was actually simultaneously uh, a film project and a novel. We first did the treatment for the, we spent a very long time doing a treatment for the film. And then from the treatment for the film, Carl then began writing the novel. So actually the novel uh, came out before the film did because the film took forever. What was the, the genesis of the film? Well, the genesis of the film was um, Carl's original idea about 
um, how first contact would occur. And so we started this treatment, this very long extended treatment from Carl's idea. He pretty much knew the idea. Um, he'd been germinating it for a very long time. And then meeting Annie fleshed it out in his mind. And then we had a very long series of meetings that were some of the most compelling and exciting meetings I'd ever had in my life, Just even just to flesh out the treatment before we even began working on the movie, um, which were even more extensive and amazing meetings. But in the first uh, range of meetings, just to flesh out the treatment, uh, we began tr- fleshing out the characters, which he did for the novel. There were some seminal characters who affected the writing of Ellie. Of course, Annie, who he had fallen madly in love with at that point, who was supposed to be on this podcast with us, but unfortunately, because of um, her dad not feeling well today, she couldn't make it. Getting to know Annie and in the incredibly profound way that he did uh, inspired a great deal of Ellie. And then there was Jill Tarter, who um, was the uh, running the SETI program at the time, who was the radio astronomer, um, and she inspired it. And so many of the women that Carl had mentored in science, who had had such a very difficult time in the early days of science, um, informed his um, uh, treatment of uh, the way Ellie had experienced growing up in science. And then he'd always had this idea about the first transmission of uh, our electronic uh, television images and radio images. He knew that they were going out into space in uh, discrete uh, messages, in discrete packages of electromagnetic waves, and that they could be received in the same discrete concrete packages, and that could alert an intelligent civilization to our presence. And then they could be, in fact, received if they, if they were technological. And he knew that would be the opening of the film. That was always there. He also knew he wanted a pollen set. He knew he wanted a layered message so that a message would be buried inside the original message that we would be receiving. So there are aspects of uh, the richest parts of contact that were present from the very beginning. Tell me about those meetings. Those must have been incredible. Well, I'll tell you one thing, and Annie and I always talk about this. Those meetings, I think, turned me into the movie executive uh, I am today, because Carl took nothing for granted. If you said to Carl, which I did, I remember distinctly saying this to him, that we needed a first act, a second act, and a third act, he didn't take that as a fact, needless to say. He didn't say, okay, Linda, fine. He said, why? Um, and I would have to justify it to him, not on the basis of sort of Robert McKee story structure. I mean, he didn't care about Robert McKee or any story structure that existed by um, tradition in the movie business. <laughs> he needed me to be able to justify that to him sort of a priori, you know, uh, not a posteriori, as we say in philosophy. I needed to explain it to him fundamentally. And therefore, I needed to be able to understand it fundamentally. So it was the hardest meetings that I ever had in my life. And thank God I'd trained and trained in philosophy. <laughs> because had I not been trained in philosophy in graduate school, I might add, um, there might have been uh, no possibility whatsoever that I could have justified a three-act structure to Carl. You know, he'd say to me, why not a four-act structure? 
why not a six-act structure? And of course, now these days, in limited series and television, there are six-act structures. There are ten-act structures. I now understand exactly what he meant. It just seemed completely um, arbitrary to him. And of course, it was arbitrary. <laughs> you know why? Because we need movies no longer than two hours so that we can have as many showings of the movie as we possibly can at the arc light. You know. When you're doing this, I mean, you're not, as you said, you're a philosophy student. You're not necessarily a, a film student, but here you are working in this industry, kind of, uh, you know, falling into this industry or, or, mm-hmm. or just not, not being your ultimate goal, it sounds like. So you're, how, how long had you been in the industry not, for not, you to know? Not a full things? year, you know? So I was a babe in the woods, and, you know, I had to go back to Sophocles to justify this to Carl. And by the way, as it turns out, Sophocles is better to go back to for Carl than Robert McKee, you know? So, and I hadn't actually read Robert McKee. I just read lots of screenplays, you know, and saw that at the end of the second act, you'd driven your cat up the tree, you know, and by the third act, you had to get your cat down from the tree. And this was not working for Carl, you know, the cat up the tree and the cat down the tree kind of analogy. So... I really had to go back to, you know, essential Greek dramaturgy. And we used to fight like cats and dogs, Carl and I, because I was giving rules that were completely arbitrary that I had been taught in nine months of being in development. And he could tear apart rules like nobody you'd ever met. And he had a story that was so much more complex and rich than anything I'd ever been pitched before trying to fit it into these narrow confines of Casablanca development rules was ridiculous. And it made me so much more rigorous than I ever would have been. It was uh, delightful, needless to say, um, and har- harrowing all at the same time. And Annie was always in the middle because she was my best friend and she was Carl's wife and she thought both of us were right. And she didn't ever want us to argue. But they were noble arguments. And they resulted in a pretty spectacular treatment, which ultimately, after uh, I left Casablanca for a small period of time, Peter Cooper threw out the whole thing, <laughs> needless to say, and uh, tried to change the nature of the entire movie. Here's what it was about, okay? While Peter Cooper was running the project, it was about a woman who was looking for a baby. She needed a baby. She was looking to space because she really wanted a baby. I know, when we think about it, we're just chills go up our spine. Astonishingly, okay, the piece returned to me years later, and I brought Carl back in. That was the first thing I did. He got rid of me, he got rid of Carl, but the karmic wheel is long, right? We got it back. When I got it back, I I gave it back to Carl, and then we began in earnest. And then we had the most amazing series of meetings, which is Carl put a workshop together with futurists and scientists uh, to talk about how to flesh out his ideas and uh, women who had been in science to flesh out that character. And by then, we had a screenwriter and we had a director. They brought in George Miller, Dr. George of Mad Max fame. Who was the screenwriter? Our first screenwriter was Jim Hart, and then we had Menomaeus, and by the time we had Menomaeus, George Miller was on. Wasn't Francis Ford Coppola attached to this at one point? No. 
Why am I thinking that he was involved with this? Was he involved in Cosmos or something or another Carl nope. Sagan project? No, nope. hmm. he was never involved with any of it. No, he was never involved with any of it. So what was that process like with uh, Mr. Miller and Mr. Hart? It was divine. George is a doctor, loves science. Danny and Carl wrote a, uh, a pass of the script first for George, actually. I think that happened before the other, I think after Jim Hart and before Menno, uh, Carl and Annie wrote a draft of the script for George, which he loved. And then they brought in Menno Mayus, and we all went to Australia. And I think the most fun part of the whole process was our workshop, uh, full of brilliant scientists. And I've been workshopping all my science movies ever since. Carl sort of worked this whole process out like they do in science symposia, where you invite the most august people you know on each topic to come speak to your team every day. And then we had stenographers. That was, I think, before... You could actually do this all electronically. Now, of course, we do it with iTalk or something. You know, <laughs> we did it then with stenographers and um, cameras, and we have this beautiful record of every single day of the workshop. It went on for a week. Everybody was at Caltech. We all learned so much, and we all got a huge book full of wonderful information that could inform the next draft of the screenplay. And that's how the thing got so rich, you know? I mean, it was rich to begin with because Carl's ideas, which are fully in the, the movie, were always unlike anything a screenwriter ever came up with. And his ideas are in every act of the, of the movie, that the first machine blow up, right? And then that... Um, the great industrialists come and build quickly the second machine. I mean, all of these ideas were all in the original piece. And then what we would do is just make those ideas more and more scientific and more and more fleshed out through the workshops. Um, always, uh, Carl had the notion that the extra, uh, that the um, in, that the intelligence would never want to present himself to a human in his real form because it would be too frightening to apprehend. And so he, or it, understood to appear in a form that would be the most comforting to Ellie. And therefore, he appeared in the form of her father. Um, this was also Carl's original idea. Where, of course, in our regular science fiction, aliens have been, you know, appearing in the form of AWOLs, you know, and... and <laughs> Um, Star Wars bar creatures for years, right? But to Carl, the, con the idea of a complex intelligence is so much more thought out that even the place in which he appeared was idealized. Um, and these were all based on years and years of, uh, of Carl's thinking about ex uh, extraterrestrial intelligence. Yeah, I, I spoke to uh, Jim Hart about the project and just the way that he describes Carl Sagan. It just sounds like everybody that he ever came into, for lack of a better term, contact with mm -hmm. seems to walk away with a wonderful feeling and great stories about Carl Sagan. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think he's in many ways the person we miss the most in our culture right now and need the most in our culture right now, because never has it been more irrational. 
and never have we needed science more. And Carl had a way of making science uh, delectable, fun, and um, full of the majesty that it really is. And making things that were backwards appear as truly backwards as they are. And that's what we're missing right now. So how did it go from George Miller then to Robert Zemeckis? Well, unfortunately, George didn't want to begin the picture when Warner Brothers wanted to begin the picture. And we wanted George to begin the picture, but he just wasn't ready. He wanted to do another draft of the screenplay. And so when Warner Brothers said to George, are you ready to start? He said no, and they were ready. And so they we went to Zemeckis. By this time in your career, you've already broken out. You've had Flashdance, Adventures of Babysitting, Sleepless in Seattle, The Fisher King, so all of these things on your track record now. So where are you at when it comes to now this transition? You're working at Warner Brothers as this is happening? I believe I was at TriStar at the time, but you know, whenever you're making a picture, you're working wherever that picture is. But uh, I think my deal was at TriStar at the time. So how did the the project kind of migrate over then to Zemeckis, and and what role were you still playing with this? Oh, well, I was very much the producer of the picture with um, my partners. And um, I very much wanted George to make it. And I was working with Annie and Carl, obviously, my partners, and um, I was quite disappointed. I got along wonderfully with the people at Warner Brothers, they wanted George to make it, too. As you can see, he still makes pictures for Warner Brothers. But they needed this for a Christmas picture. That's the movie business, you know? They had slotted it for a Christmas picture. It was supposed to be a Christmas picture. I said to George before we went into the meeting, George, just say you'll make it in Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Lie. <laughs> you know my book title. Hello, he lied. <laughs> I'm not a mythical to saying this lie, George. <laughs> but he's Australian, and they don't lie. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it doesn't matter where your deal is. You can make pictures, you know, whenever they're ready to go. You, you make the picture that's ready to go. And uh, it was originally set up at Warner Brothers because um, when Peter Goober had first set up the picture, that's where our deal was. When So it had stayed at Warner's all those years you know, when I was first with Peter Hoover. And then he, remember, I told you Peter left the project and it got back to me and Warner Brothers brought me back on it, had brought me back on it. So you were kind of the, the shepherd yes, now. Yes, I'm, I'm the shepherd. You can just call me Shep. So this is, uh, from what I'm reading, probably at late 93, somewhere By the in time there. it finally got going, yes. Because we'd been developing it now for a bunch of years. Peter had it for a couple of years, then it got back to me, and that was, we'd been working on the script with Annie and Carl now for a bunch of years um, with different screenwriters, and that's why everybody thought it was ready to go. Um, We'd been in Australia for a while, we'd been working with George for a while, and Warner Brothers was happy with the script, let's go. And George thought, well, I think I could take another pass. Now is the the project dead for a little while longer, or hibernating, I should say? You mean after... After George leaves? No, no. They, they put Zemeckis on it the next day, and he went into production. Oh, just immediately. <laughs> oh, wow. They, yeah, that's what happened. He, they, he shot that script. If that's end of 93, and the film comes out 97, it takes that long to develop this. Well, maybe that was 94, you know, or 95. Yeah, he went into production, and that's why I said I'm not so great at, at dates. 
it probably yeah we were we were probably working with George in '93 and '94, and then Zemeckis probably took it over and then it came out. Yeah. When Robert Zemeckis came down to the project, you said that the the version that George Miller was going to direct ended up being the version that mm-hmm. Robert Zemeckis was going to direct. Mm-hmm. So it was you were pretty happy with this then. The version that came out. Yeah, very much so. He did a great job. The the question of having a female protagonist. So that was at the very beginning, all the way through, has always been this female protagonist. And always Jody. Always. She hung in there through thick and thin. And interestingly, when we first conceived of it, it there there had been no female protagonists or female stars of huge franchises or huge blockbusters, movies that cost over $100 million. And it had never, because I was so, I guess, stupid, but it never occurred to me when Carl first came up with it that, and think about how ahead of his time Carl was, to come up with a huge sci-fi blockbuster with a female protagonist. I was like, great. I didn't even realize that that at that time had not happened, that that would be difficult we all thought of Jody, who I guess became the only woman that could have starred in it, although I remember Jody, Julie, Julia um, Roberts' people chasing it. But it just didn't occur to me that that would be a problem. But there really were no action sci-fi movies with, you know, that cost the same as other huge blockbusters with really a major female in the lead, and that's it. And I never considered it a problem, which I, I now realize was idiotic of me. But I, 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 if I had realized it, I might have been daunted by it. And Jody hung in all that time. She, I have read someplace that she said it was her favorite part she ever played. She's so like Ellie, isn't she? In spirit, I can't even imagine another Ellie. So no one above you balked at this whole idea of having this female protagonist? Nope. Wow, that's great. Isn't that great? And you have to say that for Terry Semmel, for... Uh, Bob Daly for the powers that be at Warner Brothers. And who knows if we had set it up someplace else if, if it would have been a big problem. Really, the only sexist thing that happened was when Peter Gruber said that she had to be looking for a baby. If she was looking in space, she must have been really needing a baby. But nobody tried to make that version of the movie. The the other thing that plays such a big part in it is the whole idea of faith. Mm-hmm. And I know that that's something that's very near and dear to Carl and Anne's heart, did that ever become an issue as the project was moving along? No, not really. I mean, Carl always wanted to have this great polemic between science and religion in the movie. We had always sort of imagined a Robert Redford kind of, you know, august character. And then they cast Matthew, which apparently always happens in my movies, even when I have nothing to do with it. And it it really mattered that it was a Credible debate, you know, that you made the best argument for religion and the best argument for science, because, uh, I mean, and that's a lot of what we did in the workshops was we met with religious people, too, and made sure that their best arguments were at the fore, because obviously Carl was a profound secularist. And I think that in the end, a good argument was made for Joss's point of view, Uh, but nobody gave us an argument about that either, no. So how was the production when it finally did get rolling? Was it fairly smooth for you? I mean, how are these things for you? Are you, uh, you know, on, on pins and needles the whole time? Because to be a producer on these things, you have to be just busy as all heck. Well, Zemeckis really brought his own line producer in who works with him on all of his um, productions. And he's a really, really knowledgeable physical, produ- physical director. So one is not on pins and needles when one is with Robert Zemeckis or... Um, 
Chris Nolan, because they're just two guys who, like Stephen, you know, they just 100% know what they're doing all the time in production. Uh, you tend to be more jumpy with a first-time director. That's when you have to be involved every second in every decision and make sure you're there for crucial transitions and they have enough footage and, you know, they got all their coverage. But when you have a super, super experienced director like Zemeckis, it's really prep is everything and then shooting is pretty easy. I uh, did not, I just visited that production because Zemeckis, as I said, has his own physical production team with whom I was very friendly and they kept me in touch with everything. Once he took over, he took over with his own wine producer who's still making all his movies. I don't know if it's just because it's A, sci-fi, and B, has Matthew McConaughey in it, but it really feels like Interstellar has a lot of um, echoes of contact in it. Mm -hmm. It feels that way to me, too, sometimes. It's hard for me to say they don't have anything in common because they both come from my heart, you know? And I was at the inception of both of them, pardon the pun, but... um, (laughs) I think the directors of both would find less in common than the person who started them both. Yeah, how did Interstellar come about? Kip Thorne and I um, were speculating about certain issues in physics. He was engaged in a really interesting experiment with gravitational waves. And I was wondering what would happen, uh, what would be the most exotic experiments that could ever evolve from his gravitational wave experiment. They look at the dark experiments uh, that they look at, um, not the dark experiments, but the dark uh, astronomical events in the universe, like the collisions of black holes, potential events occurring in dark energy and dark matter, or the collisions of galaxies and what are the results of those collisions. And I wanted to know what would be the most consequential thing to Earth that the gravitational waves detector could, could elicit. And at the beginnings of those conversations, we started generating a premise. Oh, I didn't tell you this. This is why they're cousins. This is the fun part. Kip is the person that, first of all, I met Kip through Carl Sagan. He was my blind date at the Cosmos premiere. Oh, wow. Introduced by Carl. And um, had he not worn a blue tuxedo, who knows what has happened? What would have happened? (laughs) (laughs) We were meant for each other, but for the blue tuxedo. So we double dated with Carl and Annie. Importantly, Kip was the person who Carl sent the manuscript of of contact to, to figure out how Ellie could get to the center of the galaxy back in seven minutes. And originally, Carl had it as a black hole. But Kip said, no, 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 that, that's not going to work. It would have to be a wormhole. And so Carl made the revision to a wormhole, and at that point, Kip started doing some calculations about wormholes because of contact that began the whole study of wormholes because of contact. And wormholes became a legitimate and interesting field of study in astrophysics, A, because of contact, and B, because of Carl's question, and then see because of Kip's work, which thrills me that a movie could have started a legitimate area of cosmology. Kip and I became almost married, but then best friends. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we became frequent collaborators, and we hang out all the time, and whenever I'm completely bored by the movie business, I, which is often, hang out with Kip. 
And it was in one of these sessions, and talking about his work with gravitational wave detectors, that we began the preliminary uh, work that led to uh, Interstellar and that attached Steven Spielberg. So, I mean, that's one of the reasons it feels connected to me. Do, do you see what I'm saying? Because literally I met Kip because of contact and and uh, learned about wormholes because of contact and and because I guess there's a wormhole from contact to interstellar. Right. <laughs> <laughs> if you lift up, lift up the manhole contact, you get to interstellar. Well, and they're both what you could call smart sci-fi yes. versus just like... And grounded sci-fi. And- where you actually learn science if you watch them. Well, yeah, and then it's funny that after Interstellar comes out, George Miller says, if I had directed contact, it would have been a lot like that. <laughs> I read that sentence. I almost cried. <laughs> and now you understand the whole thing, right? Contact was very well received, if memory serves. Mm-hmm. Interstellar, also pretty well received? Yes, I mean, I think uh, there was um, a tremendous amount of anticipation for it. And um, and it was um, very well received. People either loved it or they didn't love it. They either loved it madly, rapturously, or they didn't love it. But um, I think I could move to Korea tomorrow and be and China and be the most popular person on the block. So I, I, I guess it depends on where you live, whether it was um, well received or not. So. Over the the course of your career, that must have been one of the big changes as far as the whole idea of this global market. I mean, Mm -hmm. I know we've released films overseas for years and years, but it seems to have just gained such an importance over the last, what, decade or so? Yes. Literally, it went from 20% of the global box office, I mean, of the total box office, uh, and 80% being domestic, to flipping. And so... It's crazy. Like, you can have the perception here that The Martian made more money than Interstellar, when, in fact, because it's 80-20, and we made so much of our money overseas, you know, and who cares who made more money? As long as science movies are doing well, that's the important thing. But we made such a huge proportion of our money overseas, you know, and so now it's 80% uh, uh, in the international market and 20% domestic. And it's hard to really appreciate the impact of that. It really affects the movies that get made. Um, other kinds of movies I used to make, uh, romantic comedies, uh, are now being made in the international audience for themselves. So we can't export them. So if you're a Korean movie star or a Chinese movie star, you're going to make a romantic comedy for the Chinese or Korean market, right? But if you're, you know... Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, you don't, you don't travel anymore, you know, unless you're Matt Damon and you're in The Martian, then you're going to travel. Or if you're Matthew McConaughey, you're going to travel in your sci-fi movie, but not in your rom-com. So it's kind of crazy. Can you tell me about the, the Carl Sagan project a little bit? Uh, well, we're not going to talk about it much, that much, but I will say that we're going to, uh, it's going to be a love story. And it's going to tell the story of Voyager and the relationship between those two things. And then um, I'm really excited about it. And I'm doing it, of course, with my partner and best friend of 41 years, Andrian. Any other projects that you're working on you want to talk about or anything? Well, I'll be working on a movie as well with Kip and Stephen Hawking. That's going to be a, a terrifying movie. It's 
scary sci-fi, grounded sci-fi movie with some scientists saving the day and how the power of reason and, and math can, can help us save the day. Were you a science geek before you met Carl Sagan? or You know, that's a really good question. I did philosophy of science in graduate school, so I liked it, but I did not geek out to the extent that I am geeked out now uh, until I became a Saganite. So I was, I, I think I was uh, naturally inclined to become a Saganite, uh, but now it's full time. <laughs> I think you could say. So kind of like how Jim Hart was talking about, you know, what a profound effect Carl had on his life. It sounds like he had one on you as well. Well, he was my best friend. I was with him, you know. I mean, I think, I don't think, uh, uh, well, yes, kind of like that, I guess you could say. Even more so. I mean, Cosmos changed everyone's life. So that's the way it changed Jim Hart. Do you see what I'm saying? So if you're lucky enough to know him as well and to stay up late with him and get to giggle with him, I mean, that's just a treat beyond treats. But really, all you have to do is watch the first Cosmos and have him change your life. There are people that went into science for a career just because of Cosmos. Many, many millions, many thousands of people went into science just because of Cosmos. And that's why Annie's doing it again for her children. You were talking about this whole idea of him questioning everything, everything. questioning the way that the three act structure mm-hmm. works, questioning you know everything. Yeah, and it just seems like that that curiosity was boundless, but not. Uh, it doesn't sound like he had an agenda with it. Mm-hmm. Just that he was honestly curious about how everything worked. That's exactly right. He knew more about the Bible than the Christian experts he brought in. He was absolutely an astonishing didact. There wasn't a field. If it was botany, if it was nuclear arms, if it was, I mean, he obviously was the first person to delve into climate change to this effect. He did the the greenhouse effect, you know? He, there wasn't an area that didn't just obsess his curiosity. And, you know, that's why it was such an honor to know him, but that's why we want to continue his legacy and introduce him to a new generation. Well, Linda, I won't take up any more of your time. I really appreciate how much that you've given me, and thank you so much for this opportunity. My pleasure, Mike. I want to know, how did you get to be at the SETI Institute? Well, my employment here at the SETI Institute is the result of uh, luck and happenstance, I suppose. I mean, I was always interested in aliens, uh, but I think just about 90% of the population is. And I had studied uh, radio astronomy in grad school. So for uh, some fair fraction of my career, I was using big antennas to understand how galaxies behave. Found that they had something in them that we now call dark matter. But... You know, one night as a grad student, I have to say, I was reading a book uh, which pointed out that the antennas that I was using to try and, you know, learn about galaxies could also be used to maybe discover intelligent life elsewhere in the cosmos. That was a very exciting idea. And years later, it turned out uh, I happened to be living here in uh, lovely Mountain View, California. Some people at the SETI Institute found I was around and they called me up and said, you want a job? 
And that that's how it got started. It wasn't anything more complicated than that. You said you were into aliens when you were a younger man and probably still are. Were you like a typical science fiction nerd when you were growing up? Well, I don't think so. I mean, well, I don't think that I was very much of a science fiction nerd, at least not in terms of written science fiction. I read a little bit of it, but very little. And today I still feel embarrassed by my lack of knowledge of the science fiction greats in literature. But what I did like was cinema science fiction, maybe because it's really simple, and I even I could understand it. So, you know, uh, when I grew up, there were a lot of creature feature films and cheesy sci-fi films, and I went to them all every weekend. And in fact, by age 11, I was making my own films. They were even worse. But, you know, that interest is a long-standing one. What were some of your favorites? Well, in those days, they had, you know, the original Day the Earth Stood Still and uh, War of the Worlds, and they came from outer space, and uh, I married, what was it, I married an alien, uh, that kind of thing, uh, that kind of thing. And they they were very, you know, they were B-films. They were designed to compete with uh, television, actually, in the beginning, but uh, they, you know, they weren't much better than television. And I just liked them all because, you know, they had aliens, and they had these strange storylines. And, you know, in cinema, science fiction, the hero is not the lead character. The hero is the idea. And I think that that appealed to me. Now, you got to be an advisor on the remake of The Day the Earth Stood Still, right? Yes, I was a science advisor for that film. Yeah, I've, I've been the science advisor on um, some other films as well, not not quite in the same role. In the case of the remake of Day the Earth Stood Still, they actually flew me up to Vancouver when they were doing some of the uh, shooting of the interiors, had me on the set, and actually some of my... Uh, my work is actually visible in the film, so that was a little different. And I got, of course, to meet, uh, you know, Keanu Reeves and Jennifer Connelly and John Cleese. That's not too shabby at all. Well, that was fun. I enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed that. I have to say, uh, I don't know how much effect my advice had on the final film. I wanted to change much more than they were interested in changing, but uh, you know, that's not up to me. That's up to them. How did you get involved with the Contact film? Well, Contact, of course, was made. Uh, what, in the early 1990s, thereabouts, and uh, I was working at the SETI Institute, and the production company, I think it was Warner Brothers, had, uh, you know, need of a little bit of occasional technical advice, and uh, they they started using me for a lot of that, and in particular, a lot of it was kind of inconsequential. Uh, For example, what does it look like in your offices? And I would run around with my camera and take photos of the offices and send them to to, uh, the people down in Los Angeles. But they also would do things like send up their casting director uh, who came up to the SETI Institute. And I remember she sat down in my office and she said, now, I want to talk with some of your scientists and engineers. And I just smiled and gestured toward the door of my office. And I said, they're out there. And she disappeared for about three hours and came back. And she was kind of excited by it all and said she had learned two things. So, of course, I asked what they were. One was that. Uh, you all have fancy coffee mugs, and which is kind of a small thing. But if you if you watch the movie, you'll notice that all the technical types, the uh, engineers, all have fancy coffee mugs. So I guess that made a difference. The other thing that she noticed was she said, I'm intrigued by the way you carry your weight around here. And I thought she had uh, picked up on some of the hierarchy at the SETI Institute, but that wasn't the case at all. What she said was that, you all have sedentary jobs, so you're all kind of thick around the middle. And sure enough, sure enough, again, if you look at the engineers and so forth in the film, you'll notice they're all a little bit on the uh, 
you know, um, ample side, shall we put it that way? I had read that one of your coworkers was kind of the model for Ellie Arroway. Is that true? Yes. In fact, uh, two of my coworkers were uh, modeled in the film. Ellie Arroway is often said to be based on Jill Tarter, who for many years here headed up our SETI operation. She's on our board now. She's not an employee, but she is on our board and still very active. Mind you, I heard that it was some other woman working in the field of astronomy. And so, you know, I don't know what the truth is. I think that the truth is probably somewhere in the middle that Carl Sagan sort of made an amalgam of women in science that he knew or women in astronomy. But it is true that Jill Tarter, who, who as I say, works here, or did, her father died when she was very young and she was doing SETI and so forth and so on. So it's a pretty good match. So there was that. And then there was the blind physicist in the film, right? And the blind physicist actually had a prototype here by the name of Kent Cullors. He was a physicist and he was blind and he worked at the SETI Institute. And in fact, uh, in the, uh, the original intention of the filmmakers was to use Kent Cullors for the part of Kent Clark. And he went down to Hollywood and they, you know, talked with him. But then they changed directors uh, and they, they brought in uh, Zemeckis as the director. And he greatly enlarged the part of the blind physicist. And the consequence of that was that the people making the film decided that the real Kent could not possibly adequately and realistically portray the one in the movie. What do you do on a, like a daily basis? I know there's – if you ask me what I do on a daily basis of work, it changes every day. But for you, what's kind of your typical thing that you do from day to day at SETI? Well, it seems that it's answer email. That's what I spend most of my time doing. But in fact, I'm part of the SETI group here, of course, and the SETI group is very small. And so everybody has to sort of do a little bit of everything. But my principal interests are in deciding on targets, where should we point the antennas, trying to get money – interesting the public i give a fair number of talks and i do a lot of writing and of course we have a weekly science radio show that uh, deals with all science not just what's done here at the seti institute so that's another if you will outreach activity uh, but if people ask what do you spend most of your time doing at least in terms of creative or productive stuff i would say it's writing actually i know yeah you are the host of the skeptic check as well as some other things when it comes to um unexplainable phenomenon uh and i know that you've been on uh the, or you've had a role in alien or sorry ancient aliens and some other things is there anything that you can explain yeah well skeptic check is actually an episode that we do once a month for our weekly show big picture science so mostly three weeks out of four big picture science is dealing with a you know, some scientific thing in neuroscience or uh, astronomy or physics or mathematics or whatever. And once, once a month, we do a skeptic check and we take something like, I don't know, Bigfoot, just to take an obvious one. And we, you know, kind of look at the evidence and we talk to people who are investigating this and try and figure out, you know, well, what's really going on, that kind of thing. Now, have I ever heard uh, uh, something that I think is really puzzling and might indicate something that's beyond the bounds of science? I can't say that I have. And I get emails and phone calls every day from people who think that they have proof that the aliens are here on Earth. So that's one particular uh, subject, the, the UFO subject, if you will, that I confront all the time. And uh, so I've gotten you know, many thousands of emails, photos, videos, and phone calls. 
Uh, I can't say that any of them convinced me the aliens were here, but they did convince me that there are a lot of people out there who, who think they are. Do you think that that makes possibly getting funding a little bit easier for you, or is that still a hindrance? Well, I don't think it, it affects the funding one way or another. I don't think our funders have any idea that I'm taking uh, these phone calls. <laughs> I mean, it's not that I get 100 a day or anything like that. I get one maybe a day or two. So uh, it's kind of an incidental activity. And, of course, we don't investigate UFOs. That's not the, the job of the SETI Institute. So uh, I, I don't think it affects the funding. I, you know, it might affect funding if we sort of embrace the UFO phenomenon. I mean, you know, a lot of people are uh, very keen on it, and maybe they would give money to that. I don't know. But uh, we have, certainly aren't, aren't uh, the experts on UFOs. We just have opinions. You talked a little bit about the uh, pre-interview kind of thing that you did for Contact and the the girth and the coffee mugs. Were you involved much after that? Well, uh, I was being called yeah, maybe once a day for, uh, you know, they're very specific things. You have to understand it's very specific. They want to know what books do we have on the shelves. They want me to send all the books on my bookshelves in my office to uh, Hollywood. And so they could chat. Well, I, maybe that was a different film, but whatever. You know, that kind of thing. Very, very specific stuff. Um, you know, technical details and so forth. Now, you know, I've been involved with maybe a half dozen films, I guess, in total. And, you know, because aliens often figure in these films, they have questions about aliens. They're always pretty much the same questions, actually. But also, it's, it's usually they're interested in fixing dialogue to make it sound more realistic or getting some facts right or maybe just a suggestion about how to solve a problem in the story. You know, we got to get these people out of touch with Earth for two hours. How can we do that? You know, that kind of thing. These are interesting problems that you have to help solve. Yeah, that's true. But mind you, I mean, we try and do that and try and get the science accurate. But I'm, I'm, A, I'm not sure that it matters too much whether the science is accurate in a space opera. I don't think kids are going to walk out of the movie theater because the science wasn't accurate and, you know, give up a, a future career in science just because the Starship Enterprise made a whoosh when it went through space. I mean, I don't see that happening. But, it, you know, it certainly doesn't hurt to get the science right. And I think the most valuable thing I can do, which only occasionally actually happens, is to bring to the attention of the writers or the directors or producers, uh, bring to their attention some of the developments in science that they don't know about because they don't keep up with it uh, that might be of interest to them because, you know, they, they tend to get stuck in the same old uh, storylines and ideas that were, you know, current 50, 60 years ago. They, 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 they haven't moved on because they haven't been exposed to the latest developments. What are some of these things that you're bringing to them or some of the films that you think you might have uh, had some impact on? Well, I don't know if I had impact on any of the films, to be honest. I don't know. I mean, you know, you can see the results of what you said. I mean, you can hear in the dialogue, oh, they did accept my change in that wording. Or they did listen you know, in the Green Lantern, I guess it was. They, you know, they, they had an alien autopsy and they wanted my help with that. And I said, well, you really ought to call up the uh, coroner's office in Los Angeles. They, they can tell you much more than I can. But I said, one thing that you have, obviously, in the script, the alien looks kind of like a, a hominid. Kind of looks like the guy next door, except a little alien, right? And I said, and that's going to be a little bit odd because here it is. This alien comes from who knows how many light years away. And it kind of looks like another human. So, you know, maybe with wrinkly foreheads or whatever, but basically a human. And that's, you know, for people in the know, that's going to seem a little uh, contrived. And so they said, yeah, well, we hadn't thought of that. How do you suggest we fix that? And I suggested some dialogue that would fix that. And, uh, yeah, I go to the movie, and that's the only part of the film I had any input with. It was very little. Uh, but they, they did fix it. And so, you, you know, you see some 
some results of what you've told them, but you know, one has to know one's limitations. When it comes to contact, what are your thoughts about the film once you saw, finally saw it? Well, when I finally saw Contact, uh, contact I, my first impression was, gosh, this film is kind of soft in the middle, and then it ends three times, and you know, I wasn't blown away. The second time I saw it, I thought, you know, it's actually gotten better since the first time I saw it. But, of course, it was exactly the same. Uh, and by the third time I saw it, because I saw it multiple times, needless to say, uh, by the time I saw it the third time, I thought, this is a pretty good film. And I think I, I'm left with that impression of it. I thought it was good. Uh, you know, obviously, it's fairly uh, accurate be- when it comes to SETI, for sure, because the guy who wrote the uh, novel knew something about SETI. Did you ever get a chance to work with Mr. Sagan? I almost took a job with uh, Carl Sagan, yeah. yeah. No, I, 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 I certainly knew him, and I had uh, various, uh, you know, uh, uh, there were some projects in which we overlapped, yes. What are some of the things that you might have overlapped on? Well, there were some education projects here at the SETI Institute, and he was involved with those. And then... Um, uh, he, he, well, I, I gave him a copy of one of the movies I made and that sort of thing. He talked about that. And then there was a chance in the very early days of the Planetary Society that, uh, I could have, uh, worked with Sagan actually, but, uh, in, in the end didn't do it. It didn't take that job, but who knows what would have happened had I done so. It seems like SETI from the website and everything, it seems like very into education. Well, we certainly do that. Yeah. Well, and I think that that, that came out of a certain degree of idealism in a way. Uh, obviously, we compete for funding, you know, to get some of our education projects uh, going. And, and, you know, funding helps the Institute in general. But I don't think it's being done for the money at all. I think that the reason that the SETI Institute does education is because from the beginning, it was the vision of our first CEO that one of the things that uh, we can do is, you know, just improve science literacy perhaps a bit by telling people about the science we do. And in fact, I think I gave a TEDx talk a couple of years ago that probably you could find, but um, in which I you know, talk a little bit about SETI and what are our expectations for the future and that sort of thing. But I say, but until we find ET, we're still doing something useful, and that is getting kids interested in science. And uh, I, I still find that a very useful thing to do. I think that that's, that's an important thing to do because, you know, kids are interested in aliens just the way I was. And uh, so if you go into a classroom and you start talking about aliens, well, you've got their attention. And then you can, you know, bring in a little bit of uh, biology and geology and astronomy and so forth. And, uh, you know, now they're learning science without realizing that they've been, you know, it's a bait and switch kind of thing. What do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions about SETI? Well, I think very few people recognize that the uh, experiment keeps getting better, that is to say faster because of improvements in technology. I think people figure we're doing the same thing today that we were doing 10 years ago, you know, sitting around with earphones or something. Not that we were doing that even 10 years ago, but, you know, uh, so there's that. There's also the fact that, uh, and this they may know something about, that we're finding that planets, and in particular planets that can be uh, supportive of life, are not rare. Maybe one in ten stars has a planet that could support the biology. Uh, those are things that, you know, some among the public know, but in general, it's not known. Yeah, it seems like uh, when I think of the stereotype, it is kind of like contact, like a bunch of kind of navel-staring people, you know, with the headphones on or just, you know, watching the, the static come in kind of thing and no hope ever of ever finding anything. And I know that's such a unfair stereotype for 
all of the great work that you guys do. Well, unfair. I wouldn't say it was unfair, but it's certainly inaccurate. You know, I mean, if you, if you could only, you know, listen with earphones to begin with, you wouldn't be very good at finding weak signals because your ears don't integrate up the signal. They don't add it up over time so you can find weak ones. But beyond that, you're kind of limited to two, two channels and uh, you don't know where on the dial ET may be. Our receivers typically these days are listening to 30 or 40 million channels simultaneously. So that would be 20 million pairs of earphones and uh, we don't have enough people to wear all those earphones. Now, are you guys just working with the radio telescopes or are there other means of find, of looking for signals? There are other means. Uh, And we're developing what's called an optical SETI project, which is to say looking for flashing laser beams, for example. That would be one way to get in touch, too. You can send bits of information from one star system to another on a light beam uh, just as well and in some ways even better than on a radio uh, wave. So maybe, you know, somebody's doing that. Maybe they're trying to ping us with, with lasers. So, you know, it pays to look. And when it comes to the radio telescopes, I I seem to remember that there are some in, what, Puerto Rico and just kind of more like um, remote-type areas. Is that still pretty much the way that it goes? Well, there are radio telescopes in remote areas, and the reason they're in remote areas is simply because they want to be somewhere where there aren't too many people because otherwise people have all sorts of machinery, electronics, and everything else, and they make a lot of radio noise, which, of course, is uh, a decided hindrance. Uh, The big dish in Puerto Rico we have used, but not for mm, 16, 17 years. We have our own uh, antenna. It's called the Allen Telescope Array, and it's in Northern California in the Cascade Mountains, about 300 miles north of San Francisco. Does the increased, you know, everybody's walking around with their cell phones these days, does that uh, present a challenge for you guys? Well, only if they call me up and I have to deal with them. But no, not at the Allen Telescope Array. To begin with, it's in a radio quiet zone, so there are no cell towers around there. Your, your, Your cell phone doesn't work there. And if you, if you enter the site, anybody can go in there if they want. But, you know, there are big signs that say, turn, turn off your cell phone. It's not going to work, and it's going to keep screaming trying to find a tower, and that makes noise that interferes with our observations. I'm sure that there's been discussion of actually moving the uh, radio telescopes maybe out of Earth's orbit or out into Earth's orbit just to take you away from the noise of the Earth? Is that um, something that's being looked into? Well, not really, because that it actually goes the wrong way. Put all the antennas up in orbit, now they can see the entire Earth, if you will. You know, they're exposed to <laughs> interference from everywhere on a, in the hemisphere, or something like a hemisphere. So that actually makes things worse. If you want to put the radio telescopes in space, the best thing to do is put them on put them on the far side of the moon. There, there it would be quiet, but of course, it's a little hard to get a good meal there. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This has been wonderful. Well, thank you, Mike. It's been a real pleasure. All right, we're back and we're talking about contact. Thank you to Ms. Obst and Mr. Showstack for taking the time to talk to me about uh, contact and the valuable work that SETI is doing. So let's continue talking about contact. Now, I think one of the reasons why I get so worked up about this movie is because it is based on a book by Carl Sagan. And Carl Sagan really meant a lot to me when I was growing up. And I think that perhaps... I think I'm the oldest person in this group, so I think he might mean more to me than he does to you guys, but I'm not sure, and I'm not going to just assume. But for me, I grew up watching Cosmos, and like when that Vangelis music comes on, even today, 
I get freaking chills, man. I am just th- through the roof thinking about that show. Such a short-lived, you know, I think it was, what, 13 episodes. And it just, oh, it just blew the lid off of my head, man. Just, it, w- it was tremendous to see that. Now, did Sagan have any kind of effect on you guys at all? Not for me, just because I, I mean, I knew the name, but I was, ne- I knew the name as a Jeopardy answer a lot. Uh, and I just was never, for whatever reason, never read his stuff and never watched Cosmos. Now I realize I really should. I should track it down and watch it and watch the reboot, uh, if you will. So for me, I just I didn't have that connection. Neither do I. It, it, just, it isn't there. I, I'm far too unmotivated to, uh, <laughs> to have invested much effort into Carl Sagan's work. Watching his show, I must have been nine years old when it came out on PBS the first time. So I was definitely a very impressionable youth. And it was one of those things that they would show on PBS fairly often, if memory serves. And just the way that he was able to take fairly big scientific concepts and break them down into something much more palatable. And some of the things that he would say in these shows were completely different than what I was hearing in school or just kind of assuming, you know, people assuming to be facts. Like this whole idea of like, oh, well, people found out that the world was round in the 1500s or something like that. You know, like people thought, oh, yeah, we're going to fly off the edge of the the earth in, in, you know, when Columbus goes to find India and stuff. And hearing Carl Sagan talking like, oh, no, no the Greeks knew and here's exactly how they knew that the earth was round and here's exactly how they knew what the size of the earth was and talking about these experiments that were done back you know in whatever BC and it's just like oh yeah I forgot the dark ages you know the like so much of this stuff was kind of lost for a while to some people and, and but then people kind of take some of these ideas of like, oh yeah, everybody thought that the world was flat, you know, and it's like, no, actually, that's not necessarily the case. And or to take something like relativity and and break that down into, you know, terms that I could understand, terms of things that you know, it's it's much. He was much better explaining something than taking a piece of paper making two X's on either side, folding it together and sticking a pencil through the X's, which seems to be the common thing now for how to explain wormholes uh, as they did in both. Yes, Event Horizon and Interstellar. (laughs) Which do you like better, Event Horizon or Interstellar? I would definitely prefer to watch Event Horizon again over Interstellar. Jamie, I'm curious, what did you think of Interstellar? Oh my gosh. I thought it was quite a slog. I was pretty bored silly by it. I was with it for the for the opening act, and then it, I just kind of glazed over. I, I was, I found myself completely uh, apathetic to it, which is a terrible, terrible emotion to have when you're when I'm watching a movie because I, I want to feel something about a movie one way or another, but it didn't inspire anything in me really. And that's a movie that wants you to feel something, in case you didn't listen to the soundtrack. Which is so, and and, and it seemed like a reaction to uh, Nolan's reaction to the criticisms that he'd faced in previous movies. Like, you know, there was there was such a coldness to him, uh, and I, I feel like he overcompensated a little bit. <laughs> uh, he was trying to anyway, and uh, it, it 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 just didn't didn't reach me emotionally 
sorry, I want to go back to contact for a minute here. One of the things that made me laugh out loud when I was reading the, the script, so let me uh, go on the record, as it were. The script that I'm referring to is available out online, and it is uh, by uh, Menno Mays, uh, Androyan, Carl Sagan, Michael Goldberg, and Jim Hart with a rewrite by Michael Goldenberg uh, dated September 8th, 1995. So the thing that made me laugh out loud, I think it's it's one of the last pages of the script when Ellie and Joss are having their little heart-to-heart uh, towards the end of, of the thing. And um, she's back on Earth now after having met her father who art in heaven. And Ellie says, um, something my dad, they said, After all the suffering, after all the desolation of the void, the one thing that makes the vastness tolerable is each other. The one thing that makes it bearable is love. And I laughed out loud because I was like, Love? That was totally Anne Hathaway, man. Fucking 20 years later in Interstellar talking about how love is this constant of the universe. Maybe it means something more, something we can't yet understand maybe it's some evidence some artifact of a higher dimension that we can't consciously perceive i'm drawn across the universe to someone i haven't seen in a decade who i know is probably dead love is the one thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space maybe we should trust that even if we can't understand it yet and more daddy issues too because a woman can't just be a scientist. She has to have a father who's a scientist. It's like you can't just get there. You have to inherit it from, you know, male juice. So. Yes. And, the, of course, the one father is uh, the, the Michael Caine character who has been lying to mm-hmm. the, yes, the one daughter. It's weird. Like the and daughters. Moms all around. Oh, God. Yeah. There's no mothers at all. I mean, even when it comes to, well, I guess we get to see Casey Affleck's wife. And that's about it. True. All right, let's take another break and play a pair of interviews. The first one is with one of the writers of Contact, Mr. James V. Hart. And the second one is with one of my favorite actors who portrayed Kent Clark in Contact, Mr. William Fitchner. We'll play those after some brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. 
Hi, I'm Ben. And I'm Josh. And we're the hosts of the Devil's Advocates podcast. Each week, we discuss the most controversial topics and debate them in a civilized discourse. Subjects such as cultural and racial relations. Hey. Marlon is not scary. He's not scary to us because he's in a well-lit room in the middle of the day. Women's issues and the right to choose. I'm in the abortion clinic. I won. What's wrong with abortion? They're not going to know. The right to bear arms. The police get a different standard than we get. Because they have to fucking fight crime all day. The importance of love and family. He was fucking my mouth and it hit my gag reflex. (laughs) We've had guests on our show ranging from comedians like Jared Harris of Action Figure Therapy. What fucking rights have been taken away from me today? To adult film stars like AVN Performer of the Year, Aurora Snow. This is Aurora Snow and you're listening to The Devil's Advocates. Find the show online at wearethedevilsadvocates.com, my niggas. And for even more of their ignorant ass shit, go to their Facebook page at facebook.com slash wearethedevilsadvocates. Listen to The Devil's Advocates podcast today. It'll leave you more satisfied than I leave my wife. Intense, strong orgasms Mm -hmm. are the ones that I give to myself. (laughs) (laughs) Damn it! (laughs) Pardon the interruption. I have some news which I believe you will find most interesting. Would you like to hear the latest in Marvel television film, video games, and comic books? Are you looking for some ideas on what to pick up on New Comic Book Day? Well... Join Mike and Eric on Mighty Marvel Geeks every Saturday night on Sorcerer Radio and every Sunday on the Weeby Geeks Network for all things Marvel. There is a matter that requires your attention. Mighty Marvel Geeks. A symbol. All wrapped up here, sir. Will there be anything else? Can you tell me, how did you get into screenwriting? (laughs) I'm sitting here in the house that I grew up in my father built in 1952 in Fort Worth, Texas, two-story Cape Cod house. I'm overlooking 180 acres that can never be built on. My dad was a big drive-in movie fan. I'm now here cleaning up this house because both of my parents are gone. So I'm wading through 50 years of memories and debris and everything else. My dad was a movie nut. He would uh, take us in to the drive-in with my mother. You know what a drive-in movie is? Oh, yeah. You want to tell me what a drive-in movie is? Just so how people, how people, the folks in other generations know. <laughs> well, we had a drive-in movie. We had the Fort George, where we would go every eh, couple months and see usually a double feature. Pulling in, we had the whole speakers and pulling them into the car and all that. So it wasn't even the tune in the radio to hear the audio. This is the old I school. I, I, I have the old speaker that uh, that was yeah. given to me as a Pioneer Award by the Bellum Film Festival. So my kids didn't know what it was. Okay. But my dad, my dad used to pile my brother and I into the car with mom, and we would go to the drive-in. He would pop the popcorn in a big bag, and we would go for the double feature at the Twin. And of course, we would fall asleep halfway through and so he and mom could have some time together but that was my first introduction to movies there was a very famous theater in fort worth called the gateway which is now gone but it was our saturday morning and later our friday night theater we grew up going to uh for 25 cents we got double feature cartoons serials lots of looney tunes and we would park there every saturday uh, until four or five in the afternoon and every time we would come back to uh, our house from a like Spartacus or something, or them or something, you know, we would reenact the movie. So we destroyed my parent, my mom's garden. You know, we burned down my dad's tool shed, you know, <laughs> reenacting all of these uh, wonderful movies that we saw, especially Spartacus and, and the horror films. And it never occurred to me that 
somebody actually wrote something down on paper to do these movies because we just wouldn't reenact it. So how hard could it be? And it wasn't until um, SMU, uh, when I went to SMU, uh, G. William Jones, the head of the Broadcast Film Arts Department there, uh, lured me over there. And the great Ellen Kit Carson, who we just lost last year, was my first mentor. Uh, Kit nice. uh, is a legendary for Greater Holden's Diary in Paris, Texas, and, and being instrumental in Wes Anderson's career. Kit cut me out of the herd. He heard me asking questions in class, and he carved me out as a freshman in a very brand-new broadcast from our department. We went and had coffee at the student center, and he basically said, you know, here's what you're going to do with your life, and you're going to write. And I had written uh, some in school, but never thought, seriously, didn't, I never knew you could have a career as a writer, never thought it was a paying job, you're supposed to be a lawyer or accountant or something. So Kit really started me on that path to writing. This was the 60s, and uh, we all had 16-millimeter uh, cameras and perfect loads, and we went and made short films, and we started writing, and I wrote my first screenplay in college, went to Hollywood with it, went to San Francisco with it, actually, you know, tried to see Francis Coppola, and back in those days with our first script, waited all week at the Zoetrope office in San Francisco to see Mr. Coppola. And we'd sent our short film ahead of us, uh, along with our script, just assuming, of course, he would look at our film and um, and uh, read our script. So finally, on Friday, uh, the dragon lady who was guarding the front gate said, you know, Mr. Coppola is really not going to be able to see you. And we'd driven all the way from Texas. And we said, okay, well, just tell them we'll be back Monday, you know. And uh, we literally would sit all day in the reception. And as we got up to leave, I looked down the hallway, and here comes Francis Ford Coppola. This is 1970. And he's walking down the hallway through the, uh, and he comes through the door, and we all sit up and say, Mr. Coppola, Mr. Coppola, hey, it's us. We're the guys from Texas, you know? Did you see our movie? Did you see our movie? What do you think? What do you think? And, of course, behind us, Dragon Lady is waving him off. And he takes one look at us and, and turns around and walks back down the hall and over his shoulder waves back up to us back at, at us and says, keep making movies. And we went, wow, Francis Ford Coppola told us to keep making movies. Completely didn't get we were being blown off. But years later, <laughs> I was able to tell Francis that when we sat down to go through the Dracula script for the first time. And of course, he didn't remember. But, so right. but, but the writing the writing calling started with me in high school and then in college big time. Once I didn't go to Vietnam, I wasn't, I was out of the draft. Uh, I got rejected, which is fine. So I had four years to um, write, make short films, raise money for our first film out of Texas, went to Europe, made that film, won a lot of festival awards, and then started writing because I didn't like the scripts I was reading. I wrote my scripts in longhand. I didn't put my name on them. I was embarrassed. And it wasn't until 1977 when I got paid to write my first script. And it was based on my cheerleading, my male cheerleading days called Give Me an F, and it was a terrible movie, but I'm, it was fun. Where I actually got to see something on the screen that had my words in it. And that really started it. Uh, we left L.A. and moved to New York. I asked my wife, what the hell am I doing in New York? She said, you're going to write. <laughs> so Judy, Judy was my second uh, boost to write. So I wrote in New York all through the 70s. There was nobody there but Woody Allen and Marshall Brickman and all the great... Uh, author who did, did uh, Omen. I mean, you didn't, you weren't a screenwriter living in New York. William Goldman, you know, the, and me. It wasn't until the 80s when I started getting hired to write uh, all over town. It was a great glory days at Los Angeles in those days. I mean, you could you could walk in and, you know, pitch an idea and they would hire you. I wrote for Mitford Newman. I wrote for Spielberg. I wrote for Steve Tisch. Uh, John Abnett. 
great directors uh, and never got anything made. So all through the 80s, I was a very highly paid typist. My kids would was able to put them in a private school in New York, and they would always come back and say, you know, everybody wants to know what, where, where your movies are. We tell them that you're here, and I would I'd show them a stack of scripts on a desk. And they would go, oh, so you haven't made any movies. Well, we're working on it. You know? So it wasn't until the late 80s when um, things began to happen. That was when Hook was born. And uh, Hook was really, I went from give me an F to Hook. So I had a, almost a 20, almost a 15-year fan of being a development deal guy and, and living fairly well, being the one husband and the one father in the private school who didn't wasn't a, an investment banker or a lawyer. And it wasn't until 88 when my brother passed away who really got me off my ass to go do Hook and Dracula. I'd been talking about them for years and nobody wanted to do them. So Hook was the real, was, <laughs> I was, that was a 20-year-old when I was success with Hook, which came from my kids. It came from my son asking the question, what if Peter Pan grew up? Uh, and me going, I can, let's answer that. So he was really Jake, and Jake is now my writing partner. He was six years old at the time, and now he's 35 and is my writing partner. So there's your long answer of how I got started in screen trade. I know contact took a long time, and I know you're used to things taking a long time. It took a long time to come to the screen. When did you kind of get involved with the project? We were in production uh, on Hook uh, and Dracula. No, actually, Dracula was going to start. Actually, there was a, it was a pretty heady time for me. They were the Neverland sets occupied all of Sony Lot, and as they were tearing down the Neverland sets, they were building Transylvania Dracula sets. So um, it was a pretty heady time for me. My heart said, "Hook Dracula." I was had been a huge fan of Sagan, of Carl, and had read his books, and was a devotee of him. And I had read Contact, uh, the novel, the book, and it was just it was one piece of fiction at that point, and I was blown away by it. But I thought it was unadaptable. And suddenly I started getting phone calls from um, Warner Brothers. Uh, my, my, my agent started getting phone calls from Warner Brothers and Linda Oaks, the producer, about me doing content. They knew I was a sci-fi buff. They knew that I had Hook and Dracula, so suddenly I was flavor of the month. And um, I was terrified of, of the idea of adapting content. I was, it, was, it was so complex and such, such big ideas, and it, it was so anti the normal kind of science fiction alien, you know, uh, intelligent thing. I mean, it was so different. Even from ET, it was different. And I said no. Uh, and they kept pursuing me. And I kept saying no. And then I found out something. I met with Linda Oates and I found out that there had been seven writers on contact that had started as an outline that Carl and Annie Drea, his second wife, wonderful Annie, had done uh, seven years earlier before it was a novel. And there had been two other directors on it. And I read a couple of drafts. They were awful. They had nothing to do with the book. And I found out that not one of those people, not one of those writers, and not one of those directors, and no studio executives had ever talked to Carl Sagan about his novel. And that got me. Linda had Linda had actually introduced Anne, Annie and Carl to each other, so she was very tight with them. So as a last-ditch stand, I said, you know what? Here's the deal. You pay me all this money. You fly my family first class back to New York from Hook. We spend time with Carl Sagan and Annie and their family, and Carl has to approve me as the writer for the script, and he has to be included as part of the development. He has to be one of the producers. He has to be on board creatively in order to make this work. And I assumed they would say, no, we're not going to do that. And I was wrong. They said yes. I went, fuck. Okay. So they flew us back. We had an incredible weekend with uh, the Sagans up in Ithaca. Uh, our, our kids were all together. Uh, 
Linda was there. Uh, we played charades. We talked the yet. And I basically just interviewed Carl like a journalist about his book. What did he want? What were his goals? Why did he write it? What did he want people to come away from it with? How did he see it as a film? What were the important themes for him? And we spent three days, uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, uh, that magic weekend in Ithaca. And I would make notes every day, and he would look at the notes with all my typos and everything, and he wanted to see how I was interpolating him. And in that weekend, we cracked. We found the movie inside the book. We found the, 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 the basic structure uh, and the movie inside the book. I set off to go write an outline that was going to take me a year. And that's how I got involved in contact. I can tell you more stories about what happened afterwards. That was the beginning of my relationship with Carl, which went for two and a half years. It was the most incredible time I've ever had as a writer with somebody like Carl. What was he like with you as a person? Uh, he never, it's interesting. I, people, I was intimidated by meeting him until I met him. And I, in all my time with him, I never saw him talk down to anybody, even working with kids. You know, I never saw him make anybody feel stupid. What Carl was great at was getting you to communicate. He would ask you questions. One of the most famous times we had with him is that we all were all at Disney World together while I was running the show. He was there with Sam and Sasha and, and Annie, and that we were there with Jake and Julia. And we all had breakfast at one of those big, one of the places, you know, and we're all there. And, of course, the Disney characters are all coming through, Goofy and Pluto and Nikki, and, you know, they're all dissing the tables. And Sam is one year old. Barely even one, I think. So Goofy comes, uh, Pluto comes over to our table. And he's there doing his thing, or who she, whatever it was, whatever actor was in there. And I just watched Carl looking up at, at, at Pluto, just studying Pluto. And Sam is giggling, and Sasha's giggling. And Carl leans up to Pluto and says, Excuse me, Pluto, do they give you special training for nonverbal communication? And I watched Pluto stop and turn and look at Carl and then nod his head, Dick, and they couldn't speak. On verbal <laughs> communication. And Carl said, Well, do they give you any training to deal with a child that might be afraid of you or frightened or in distress? Pluto looks at Carl again and goes, Big nod, yes. And you can see that the character inside Pluto going, I'm fucking talking to Carl Sagan. And Carl says, Could you uh, give me some examples or write some of the rules down that they, that they teach you for nonverbal communication? And of course, Pluto has a big autograph pad and a big pencil with a big paw. Pluto sits down at our table and begins to write answers out for Carl's sake to on the path. And Carl and Pluto continue to have this conversation where Carl speaks and Pluto answers non-verbal. And now all the kids at all the other tables go, why didn't Pluto come to our table? Huh? Why didn't he come to our table? Mommy! <laughs> so Carl finally thanks Pluto, shakes the paws. Pluto gives Carl a big hug. Somebody wants to take a picture of them. So whoever that Pluto was had, a, had the kind of audience with Carl Sagan that I witnessed over and over and over again. He was a brilliant communicator and always made you feel welcome, and, and he disarmed you. He neutralized any fear or any intimidation that you might have from someone of his brain caliber. And that was what the relationship was like. I was with him when they turned on the, the telescopes at study at Goldstone. I mean, at, uh, out at Edwards Air Force Base, or something he'd been living his entire life for. When they were going to do the array and start searching the, the universe for, for extraterrestrial intelligence. He was a kid in high school, you know, he had his son with him, this is his entire dream, they all sat down at a big news conference and they had telephones linked all around the world when they were going to turn on the switches, and the phones, the phone system wouldn't work, and Carl says, here we are about to go, you know, search for intelligence millions of miles left here, some earth, we can't even get the phones to work, but we did, they turned it on, and he was, it was a great day for him, but as we left, Edwards, 
the military base. And you drive into Edwards, you pass this rock mounds with all of the different insignia and ensigns and emblems of the different squadrons and the different you know, flights and different commands with, you know, lightning bolts coming out of eagle's eyes and big talons with American flags and, and all kinds of military kinds of symbols of war, but very reverent. It's like almost like a shrine. And we're leaving, the sun's going down, the dust is blowing across the, from the desert. Across the stop here. We're all in the van, his friends and his son and everything. And we start walking through this sort of monuments to war. And I see Carl standing there by himself, and he calls me over to him, and everybody else is looking at stuff. And he was very melancholy from such a, uh, you know, penultimate high that he had earlier in the day. And I said, hey, you're okay. And he said, I'm just, I'm, I'm worried. I'm thinking, you know. He said, we turned on, the, we started sending a signal today yeah, out there. And he said, I give us 10 years. And I was like, what? Yeah. He said, I give us 10 years to, to get an answer or I'm worried that we won't be here when they respond. And I'm looking at all the war memorials and going, okay, he's worried that we're not going to be around as a civilization when they finally do answer that we're going to have something drastic or taking each other out or environmental holocaust. After Carl died, I realized that maybe I was missing the point. He was already sick when we had that event. He was already dying. And I think he was talking about himself, that he would be here in the next 10 years in order to answer the call. And it always struck me after he died, that was a moment where he was seeing his own future and seeing what he had put into motion and would not be around to see if he was right or wrong. But uh, that's the, it was, I had an extraordinary two and a half years with him uh, on the script before more writers came in and more directors. And God bless Jody Foster for hanging in there through two directors and three more screenwriters to get the movie done. When you and he were working together, what was kind of that moment when you kind of cracked the code of contact? How did you finally come with that approach to make this book into a film, into a script? Well, there were two key relationships in the book that weren't really mined in the book in terms of cinematic terms. One was a relationship with her father, with Ellie's father. Carl had written this beautiful moment in the center of the book where she meets her father at the center of the galaxy. He's actually an alien, but he's taken on the form of her father to receive her as the candidate uh, that's come from the Earth, who's made it there, who's answered the call. And it was a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful scene in the book. And I said, Carl, this is great, but, you, but there's nothing that, that, there's no real relationship in your book that builds up to this, that gives us this, this relationship. And this is who she's really looking for, of why the aliens would even take that form. And um, Carl said, you're right. So we built that relationship, the telescope, looking the stars, father being her first window into, into searching the, the universe for signs of intelligent life. And the line that he says, and she says, is there anybody else out there? And his response is, if it's just us, it must seem like an awful waste of space. That's not Carl. Uh, I found that in um, Thomas Mann's writings, which is a long, elaborate thing about, if the gods were there, maybe the stars aren't inhabited, and what is God doing? You know? And I distilled it, and when Carl read that, he went, that's it. That's, that's the thing. That's what this is about. The, big, the best argument that we have for intelligent life is that God really, whoever the creator is, he created all this space just for us. What a waste of space. You know, what are, what are, what are, why? So that became the theme that ran through the story, and the, it was key that she had a relationship with her father 
to anchor and, and to earn that ten percent of the balance. The second relationship was uh, Josh. In the book, he was a fifty-year-old evangelical, a very popular evangelical, and more of a science-minded evangelical. He was a layman and had an experience uh, he couldn't explain. It began to much more philosophical about the study of of the Creator. And in the book, he's fifty years old, and that's who I wrote in the screenplay originally. I didn't write Matthew McConaughey age character. I didn't think she was looking for somebody like that. I thought she was looking like her looking for her father. But that was a key relationship that was buried in the book. In the book they never even fell in love. In the book they never even got together. In the book they only hinted at the end. So we built that relationship, which was key and critical that she had something to lose and also a romantic interest that was on actually 180 degrees away from her position on a God on God and science, on religion science. And it worked great. I thought the other writers, um, Minnow Mays, who should have gotten credit, he really did fantastic work. And Michael Goldenberg, they really took that relationship and expanded on that and really made it work. And Minnow Mays, uh, it was George Miller who was on the project before Zemeckis. And when Minnow Mays came on, that's the version of content I wanted to see was the one that George Miller directed. I thought Zemeckis did a brilliant job of realizing it. Uh, but it was interesting that the two points of view were very different. Uh, in the screenplay, so I was giving notes on it. How long were you working with George Miller on this? Were you still the only writer at that particular point? I did not get to work with George Miller. Um, Okay. Warner Brothers hated my script because it had math in it. It had pi. Pi was the central part of the book. The decoding of pi, the transcendental number, down to the artist's signature is what Carl had written about. And we worked very hard to find ways to visualize pi and to make pi understandable to the general public in terms of why it was the key to the signal, why it was the key to getting to the center of the galaxy and meeting the, the intelligence. So they wanted me gone. Michael Goldenberg came and did a, a really nice revision, uh, but nothing, you know, nothing. He, he made he made Ellie the single candidate uh, going to the center in the book. There were five candidates, and she's the one who's singled out when they get there that has the experience. He did a really great job of revising me, but then when George Miller came on, he brought in Minnow. And Minnow is really the one who brought the outside world into the story. All of the media, all of the kind of uh, uh, use of, of news media and covering and advancing the story. But Minnow didn't get credit. I wasn't bothered because he did not get credit for his work. His work was brilliant. When Zemeckis came on, Zemeckis went back to Goldenberg's draft and went to Goldenberg. Uh, and again, I, not realizing, or maybe, I'm not sure, what uh, the process was there, but I was I was not part of the production. Uh, Jody kept me informed. Jimmy Woods kept me informed uh, about the progress, and I was delighted when I finally read the shooting script of how much of it was Carl and I and what we did that weekend in Ithaca. Warner Brothers looks at your script. They go, too much math. Uh, are you immediately out, or are you given a chance to rewrite? No, I'm out. It took me a year to do the outline and a year to do the screenplay. That's how hard this was. Normally, studios and production directors don't understand the writing process and don't understand. My, my treatment was 100 pages long and was very, the producers were very happy. So was the studio, very happy with the treatment, but it took a year. A new studio head came in during the writing, and that's always bad news for anything that's in development. And he did not like my script. My producers liked my script. Carl gave me an A minus. You know, he would grade my stuff, you know, B plus, C, D, and A minus. It went in and it, it hit the, hit an oil slick and, you know, skidded off the tracks. And fortunately, 
because Jody was involved. I had written Hot Zone at, at Fox for St. Bruce for Linda Oaks. And Jody committed to my first draft of Hot Zone. Similar character. Nancy Jacks, uh, the, who ended up fighting Ebola and all the stuff that went on. And we're finally doing the TV series. But uh, Jody was on Hot Zone while I was being fired off the contact. And uh, they were bringing a replacement, what have you. And to Jody's credit, Linda showed her contact, and Jody left Hot Zone when it fell apart because of uh, director, actor, not my script this time. She went straight to contact. So I was fortunate, very fortunate, to have an actor of that caliber champion this this, uh, this script. Jody Foster has always struck me as being one of the smartest people. Well, and of course, James Woods is super intelligent as well. How does she strike you? How was she to work with? Or, well, you kind of did and didn't work with her. Uh, we Actually, we there, there were some people were kind enough to keep us in touch. We had a few phone calls, and she would let me know how the script was evolving. Um, and you're right. She and Jimmy Woods are two, the two of the smartest people I've ever met in my life, period. But very much so in our business. Jody was extremely intelligent. And uh, in matter of fact, Jimmy... Um, called me um, after shooting one day and said, let's have lunch, because I wrote another script that both of them like. And he just went on and on about her presence and her stamina and her getting things done a certain way and the relationship with Zemeckis, you know, that she really was determined. And she ended up channeling Carl. I was watching her performance just the other night here, and I realized she was doing Carl Sager. She had that, that, that wide-eyed, bushy-tailed, uh, wistful uh, belief and also that determination, uh, which is what Carl was. I just found her to be gracious and kind and smart and ask the right questions and didn't give up. And Jimmy still, and we've known Jimmy for my wife and I've known him for a hundred years. I mean, he, he, you know, this is a guy that left MIT to be an actor. So uh, he was blown away by the whole experience uh, and it was very complimentary of all the efforts that went into keeping it smart. Now, I know this is coming on, what, 25 years or something since you started working on Contact, so I apologize if I'm getting too in the weeds here as far as the timeline and stuff. So you start working on this, you said, when Hook and Dracula were still in production, so that puts it, what, late 80s going into, like, 90? 19, 1990. Hook was in production in 1990 and 91, so this would have been 91. Right. And when you're on it, who was attached as director, or did they have anybody at the time? Did not, not have a director. At one point, Francis Coppola had, was developing the project with Carl. When it was a treatment, not a novel. When it was a mm-hmm. treatment back in 80, 1980, I think it was first a treatment. I actually read the screen treatment, the screen, the, you know, the treatment for the movie. Between 80 and 91, there had been, I think, five, four or five writers and two directors. Yeah, because I remember also reading Roland Joffe attached to it yeah, at one Roland point. Yeah, Roland Joffe was on. Uh, they had a bunch of writers. The guy that wrote Breaking Away, I read his draft. I mean, they're all the drafts avoided the book and avoided the science. At one point, Ellie had a, a, ch- a son who stowed away on the ship with her. You know what I mean? It, just, it was like, come on, just do the book. <laughs> right. Uh, no wonder they were afraid to consult with Carl. Stephen Teshitz, that's it. Even the uh, former head of the Academy had written a draft. I mean, it's amazing the, the caliber of writers that have been on the project and the caliber of directors. So you're, what, you're off this in I think, I, mean, I, think I, mean, I think I was the seventh writer to come on the project. Oh, my God. Oh, I'm mean, the fifth writer. There were two more after me, uh, Michael uh-huh. and, uh, and then Omez. And it still took, what, another four years before this comes to the theater? 92. It was in the theaters in 97. So from 92... 
I think it moved into production in '96. So there are four years where they were with George Miller and then, and then, and then Bob Zemeckis, and then that's when it took off. So when this comes out, are you invited to the premiere, or how are they treating you as the? Well, it's just uh, a, it was a big surprise that I got screenplay credit. Uh, Warner's had teed up the fact that Michael Wilbur is going to get sole credit. And they had all the posters printed, TV spots, trailers, everything. Michael screenplay, Michael Lillenberg, and their arbitration wasn't over. Uh, and I was actually not going to arbitrate. Uh, the Writers Guild, you always arbitrate for credits when you have more than one writer, or there's a production executive involved, or something. And um, I wasn't even going to arbitrate because Carl had died before the film was finished, and I felt had been had felt very disowned by the studio and by the director and writers and all the whole production, I just felt very out of source with it. The only person that kept me in touch was Jody and, uh, and Jimmy. Um, and so I read the shooting script and I went, wait a minute. <laughs> I mean, this is what we did. It was not word for word, obviously. It's never word for word. The structure, character, relationships, is all the stuff that caught my mind in that book. So I said, okay, I'm going to arbitrate, thinking it's a long shot. Yeah. And um, uh, I'll never forget it. I was... Uh, Going to the theater to see Whoopi Goldberg and putting the other way for him, and I got a, a phone call on my. We had answering machines in those days, still. That the writers really called, and they had the they determined the credits, and we only had one cell phone at that point, and my wife had it, so I had it. I jumped out of the taxi, went to a pay telephone in the rain, and called the girl to find out what the results were, and I made him repeat it three times because I didn't believe it. Screenplay by James B. Hart and Michael Goldberg me in first position. I was elated because it meant that what the work that Carl and I had done initially was vindicated, but also it was your peers that do the arbitration. It's not lawyers, it's your writer your writer peers. So they went through all the material, all the drafts, everything, the treatments, everything, and determined that I should be in first position. I had thought Mel Mays would be in first position. He didn't even get credit. It had an interesting ripple effect. Warner Brothers had to change posters, TV spots, trailers. I was not exactly... Uh, uh, a welcome name in those circles. Unfortunately, it uh, impacted Michael Goldenberg, who's had a wonderful career, an incredible career. It impacted Michael Goldenberg in a very negative way towards me. And uh, we were not invited to premiere. My wife is on a plane from London, flying back to L.A. I was with my son and daughter in L.A., waiting to hear if we were going to be invited to the premiere on the day of the premiere. So, yes, we were invited. Uh, yes, we went. I had already seen the film... They have to screen the film for you when you get credit. I'd already seen a film at Warner's with Menno, the two of us sitting in that theater by ourselves. And when that credit comes up at the end and says for Carl, both of us just lost it. We just wept. And he had to excuse himself. I know how difficult this was for him if he didn't get credit. I've always wanted to hug him and say, you know, you should have been up there in first position. And when he left and I wandered around the Warner Brothers lot for an hour just like looking for somebody to talk to. I was so blown away by how good the movie was and what a great job Zemeckis had done. We went to the premiere. Uh, Jody gave me a big hug. Jimmy gave us a big hug. The audience loved the film. And um, so it was a very bittersweet victory, if that's the right word. I'm not sure victory is the right word. I think very bittersweet, satisfying ending. I always like to use the word satisfying ending. I would love for Carl to have been there. It would have been nice. Hey, he, I can see him looking at the film and looking at your original list. Well, it's a good start. Ah, B minus. <laughs> and that would have been praise, you know, and generously. I mean, he would have said it not condescendingly but generously. Still is resonates to me that time with him, how privileged I was to have that time. And the only reason that happened was that I'm a screenwriter. I didn't have the math for physics. I wanted to be a physicist. I wanted to be an astronomer. I wanted to be an astronaut. Never had the math. So the only reason I had the, the 
audiences and, and could shadow him and go into places where I never would have been able to have access just because I'm a writer. And I keep thinking myself every time I realize that over and over and over again, I am having these adventures and these privileges and these accesses and these experiences because I'm a writer. If I were a lawyer or an accountant or a banker, you know, it never would happen. And I've had, this is not the first time I've had an incredible experience like this, but Coral was special. Annie and I are still in touch and um, I'm so glad to see Cosmos back on the air. And, and But there's not another Carl. There's nobody has stepped into his shadow or his shoes. There's just not anybody like him. They've tried, but nobody's emerged that's captured, that's brought people to the science community in what he did. Now, I know you know you talked a little bit before about how development works and how many scripts that you've written that haven't made it to the big screen and all this, but did I read right that Hot Zone is kind of coming to the screen? Would it be a television show? Being developed right now is a, TV, it's a limited series uh, at Fox. Um, for years, Richard Preston and I had wanted to do... Richard Preston wrote the novel, wrote the nonfiction novel, Hot Zone. He also wrote the magazine article on New York that the start of all this. Uh, we worked together very closely uh, back in the 90s uh, on, the, on, the, on the script. Jody was involved, Ridley Scott was involved, Rock the River was involved, same producer, Linda Oaks. And it fell apart. People tried over the years. And Richard and I would always revisit each other every couple of years saying, God, I figured out a way to do Hot Zone. And two years ago, it finally hit me with the sort of change in the television world. Let's do Hot Zone as a limited series because then we can do the book. And I went to Dave Madden at... Uh, Fox TV, and he went, this is great, let's do it. You know, it, it's complicated because you have all the original players, millions of dollars against the cost of it. You know, it's owned by the studio. So I went to Linda Oaks, and we had a meeting, and she said, that's a great idea, let me do her, do what I do, and she did. She went and got Ridley on board, and she went and got Giannopoulos to sign off on us doing it in the television series. I got Richard back on board as more than a consultant, you know. Uh, we're all participating as executive producers. Uh, Jeff Venter is uh, writing the, uh, has written the pilot of the Bible. And we'll see. Uh, during that time, the Ebola outbreak happened in Africa. And <laughs> we were doing this before that happened. Uh, so we've had to incorporate all of that in. But everybody's going, oh, you're just capitalizing on the fact. Yeah, right. Yeah. We timed the Ebola outbreak so we could, you know, we caused the Ebola outbreak so we could resurrect Hansa. Um but I'm excited. We'll see. It's uh, it's very ambitious. It does go back and do much more of the book than we, that we could do in the screenplay. Plus, the characters breathe much more in-depth and in layers and over a period of time that you don't get to do in a film. And it's actually why I love television right now. We're getting to do all these great things that we couldn't do as features. My son and I have two of the Kurt Vonnegut gems that we've loved set up uh, at Universal for television. We're trying to set up two more. So TV's resurrected a lot of these things that we couldn't, we can no longer do as features. I've heard your name attached to a few Vonnegut's over the years, and I'm really glad to hear that those might come to fruition as well. That is terrific. I hope so. We're, we're, it's, the, it's, right, it's the right time for him, and it's the right audience, and the TV has come of age, and the audience are demanding more and more sophisticated content. You know, it's wonderful. What else are you working on these days? Um, I'm, in, I'm writing a Japanese manga adaptation for a very famous Japanese manga comic. Andy Circus is attached to act and direct uh, a, a project of shocks that I can't talk about because it's a public domain fairy tale. It's another, we've taken another fairy tale and we'll sit it on its ear. I don't know what's happening with it, but that's out there. Two more TV series I'm working on. 
couple of other, we have a feature in China, a feature I'm writing, a feature for a Western finance company about a very famous cartoon actor, which I also can't speak about. So I'm, I'm busier. I always like to say I'm busier now than I was 20 years ago for half the money. That's not good at all. It's okay. It's nice to be busy. That's That's true. Yeah. Well, hey, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. This has been terrific. Well, just as a closing, I want to say on July the 15th, I'm in Washington, D.C. at a caucus on creative rights where I'll be speaking to Congress. I will be speaking out against piracy uh, and against uh, laws that uh, protect uh, advertisers from piracy and how they're affecting our IP affecting RIP and uh, and our uh, our industry. Uh, so um, the gray hair helps in that respect too. been a big fan of yours for a long time so i'm uh, really excited to chat with you i'm not sure how often people ask you about contact though <laughs> not you know well you know for the obvious reasons of 20 years i believe it's 20 years this year not that often though you know contact is a movie that sometimes people talk about it and they're like it's like their favorite film um Sometimes, you know, sometimes people, they, they, didn't get, they didn't get the journey, you know? I, I happen to be one of those people that, like, think it's one of my, like, favorite movies. I really just like it and have always loved uh, the Ellie, Jodie Foster's character's journey throughout the whole thing. I just thought it was just great. So, uh, you're right. Anyway, get back to your question. I, uh, no, not that often. It was fairly early in your career, right? Yeah, I think Contact was one of, um, I think it was the first like studio picture that I'd ever worked on. I don't know about that, but, you know, the thing that was, it was early on, I don't know, maybe like the fourth thing or fifth thing that I worked on. You know, I really, Contact was the great thing because it, usually at that point and, and, you know, that long ago, you know, uh, if I got a, a, a job in a film, it was usually the only, the, the, the casting a week before it started shooting. So you'd have to kind of get it together. And with contact, I found out, I found out, uh, you know, I believe the movie started shooting in July or August. And I found out about it, you know, right around, right before it started principal photography. That's when I met Robert and, Zemeckis went on tape and that, and anyway, I ended up getting it. Um, and then I found out that I, I, I didn't start work for uh, like another two and a half months. The part, you know, in New Mexico where, where, where I came in, that was the greatest thing that ever, you know, it was one of the greatest things that ever happened to me because not only was I playing this character that, you know, was you know blind, but I, um, I, I had time. I had time to kind of figure it out and, and work on it and really kind of changed my love of, of preparation, you know, because here I am, I'm a young actor. I, I had a job that I actually wasn't going to start for a couple of months. That was a rarity. So 
So it was just, it was, you know, there was nothing about it that wasn't wonderful. I remember I was living on in the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and, and uh, the day I found out that I got the job, I, I, I'd walked by the Jewish Guild for the Blind, you know, for years and years on, I think, 64th Street and, uh, in, on the Upper West Side. And I walked right down, I went in the front door, and there was a guy named Rich Paddock, P-A-T-A-K, and he was in charge of, like, all volunteer services, you know? I went and I saw him, I said, listen... And he saw me too. I asked the woman, "Can, can I please talk to uh, um, who's in charge of you know volunteering here?" And 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 this woman introduced me to him, and I said, "Listen, you don't know me, but I'm but I'm doing this movie called Contact, and uh, I really want to get it right. Now, I mean, I'll do anything. I want to hang around. I want to. I just want to learn how to you know." And he was. He told me later on. He goes, "I knew you were really serious about it." So he really rolled out the door for me and. And, you know, spent at least once a week with me, you know, hours talking and doing things. So it was a great thing because it's uh, really, you know, I discovered so much about, you know, that the, the process beforehand. And for the first time, really had the luxury of, of having the time to, you know, really work hard on it. What kind of things did you pick up as you were talking to him and he's kind of mentoring you in this role? The interesting thing was he said, you know, I... I I said, listen, I don't know if I'm going to use a cane. I don't know if I'm going to have a dog. I don't know, I don't know what I'm going to have. But what I want is, um, you know, for me, too, I wanted to observe. I wanted to see. And so he taught me a lot about, he taught me how to, how to use a cane. He used to follow me. He used to walk around the block and up in Manhattan. You know, he'd stand behind me and I'd just go around the block. Uh, I remember that uh, he introduced me to some folks up in Yountville, north of New York, and it was a whole uh, uh, seeing eye dog training facility there, and I went and, and you know worked with um, with uh, with animals. And um, but more than that, you know, I, I just being around him, and uh, I would ask him questions and that, and he would he would just give me just things that somebody just wouldn't know, you know. Um, tell me how you know he would explain things to me about how. Just what the experience of, of being blind, you know, would be something that we wouldn't understand, you know, a sense of uh, a horizon or, and also too, a lot of it, I, I remember sitting in my little railroad flat on 80th and Amsterdam and for an hour a day putting like these blindfolds on and at first it was just like, oh wow, it's really dark. But little by little, I try to make my way around my place. And I was religious about it. Like, don't peek, don't look. And, uh, you know, just things like, they, you know, I'm just actor speaking right now, boring, but it was kind of, you know, I had a chance to explore this sort of thing. And then that ended up being, you know, quite a interesting emotional journey in that, like experiencing something like that. And I was pretty religious about every day spending this time just alone. And, uh, you know, and really from the very beginning all the way through, all I really wanted to do most of all is... Uh, you know, I just wanted to represent um, a non-sighted person to, to you know, as well as I as well as I could. So, what was the actual shoot like for you? It, incredible. I liked Robert very much, our director. You know, he's a very strong, very smart man. And it was interesting because I think that, uh, you know, I think right up until the first day that we began. I remember like a couple of days before we started principal photography or I started my part on it, you know, Robert had, uh, uh, he introduced me to, uh, 
this couple that was there, Millicent and Gary, I'm shame on me, I don't remember their last names, it's been 20 years, uh, but she was, uh, she was blind, he was sighted, and they were a married couple, and they were kind of like my tech advisors, you know, and he, he introduced me to them like a couple of days before we started, which I remember as an actor, I remember thinking to myself, geez, I wonder if he thinks that I really haven't been working on this. I was just going to kind of wing it because I was, because he told me early on, you know, I don't want you to wear glasses in this. So I played for a while with this like focus thing where I'd focus on something like 10 feet away and then just like keep that focus distance. And it, and it helped me. You could wave your hand in front of my eyes and wouldn't blink or anything. I just focused on this thing. And so Millicent and Gary came and I met them and, and I was like, hi, I, I've been working on this a little bit, and uh, and we spent like 20 minutes together, and they're like, "Wow, you really have." If I and and they were around with me, you know, throughout it, which was great because they were super sweet and really nice. And uh, you know, I remember that. I remember it was the first time that I'd worked with Jody. To meet her was wonderful, and then to work with her, she was really just a lot of things. Tom Skerritt, and um, who I'm a huge fan of, and and. You know, as a young actor working in film, and I was, you know, meeting these people, and uh, James Woods, and, you know, I've only worked with him just for a few days on that, but you never forget him. He's like a fiercely intelligent person that's uh, always entertaining to be around. He's such a great actor. So there was just so many things, just so many things about the movie that I, uh, I loved, besides the journey, you know, what it was, you know, what... Carl Sagan began with and you know the movie that they 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 shot I remember amazing locations being at the very large array in New Mexico 56 miles from Socorro south of Albuquerque due west is where the very large array is and we shot there and um you know you just knew that you were around something that was uh something that was you know different and special because it was you know you knew that when you read the script it was quite a journey. I've always described contact as that, you know, you wouldn't call it like, you know, a big special effects movie at all. It was a much more intimate journey. But then this, then she takes this ride at the end that even though you don't think of it as a big special effects movie, it's, you know, one of the most, and it's not dated at all. Cause it was, I, I saw the ending of it not long ago, flipping around on the channels and I'm like, Oh wow. Contact. And, you watch that ending of it, and it's spectacular. Twenty years later, I really believe that. Besides, you know, you know, she's just thinks somebody, you know, Jody's just so amazing in the movie. And I really just, you know, love her character and her strength, and you know, that thing that Jody Foster does, you know, that it's just, you know, so, you know, her. Had to be tough. Not only are you playing an unsighted character, but you also have all the science that you have to kind of muddle through with some of that dialogue. I mean, that must have made it even more tough for you. Not really. In, in, in a way, um, you know, but I'm one of these people that thinks, what's ever really tough about working in a movie? You know, it's, it's tough when you work in a, in a steel plant. That's tough. You know, you work at a movie and, you know, okay, can I get a latte and a bagel? No, it's not tough. It's a beautiful challenge. And you like to find the rhythm of, of a character or at least try to fully realize that. You know, from the beginning when I 
when I looked at the part and what I talked about with Robert um, was, uh, you know, I had to make some choices, you know, that there was this a guy that was excited at one time and then wasn't. So we had a little bit of a sense. You know, I, I, a lot of this goes back to like sitting there with that blindfold on for, for a couple of weeks. What a challenge. I mean, this is a challenge for me to like walk around my apartment in the last like two months and, and, and this guy moved around the world and went and got a PhD and from the script was confident and, and, and a, and a man, you know, fearless in his field. And I thought, wow, that's real power. So I, I really felt uh, that, you know, this was a man of uh, real understanding and strength and, uh, you know, unafraid to explore. So all of that together, you know, the, the, the tech part of it, it just all rolls into one, you know, lines are lines. It's not nothing hard about figuring out what you're going to, you know, what the lines are. It's just the understanding of uh, who he is. And, uh, you know, I just, I loved, you know, what I discovered. And hopefully it's, uh, you know, was a, you know, great piece of the movie, I hope. For a character who's not on screen that much, you are such a presence in the film. And it's kind of one of these, like, waiting for you to come back. And I'm glad that you do towards the end. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's, uh... When she gets ready for the big journey, nothing. nothing you know, I'm just sitting here smiling. It's uh, nothing but a smile when I think about it. Yeah, it's, it was uh, quite a big film too at the time. It must have uh, helped helped you out a little bit as well. For sure. You know, I remember that was the first like big premiere that I'd ever gone to, and I was dating my wife now, but we were dating then, and I remember that. That was the first time that I'd ever been to like a really big premiere. I was living in New York and trying to do theater and I'd done a few films, but this was a big deal. And I remember pulling up in a limo with my wife who was in Westwood. And I, I never saw like red carpet that big and people like that. And I was like, I almost said to the driver, just keep going. <laughs> it was all a bit much. My wife and I were like, I'm a little nervous about this whole thing. Jeez. Uh, I still remember what she wore. My wife was so pretty that night. I remember that. I remember there were like big movie stars there. It was a big premiere. I was like, oh, wow. It's a good way to impress your date. Yeah, really. It's funny. You know, I I, I still would show, I've, I don't know, maybe I've done 40 films now, but I absolutely always, always throw contact in, in the top five experiences that I ever had. Absolutely. back. Thanks to Mr. Hart and Mr. Fitchner for taking the time to talk to us. You'll find the rest of the interview with Mr. Fitchner over at our website, projection-booth.com. I think you'll like it, so be sure to check it out. It was a real delight talking with him. Talking a little bit more about contact, I talked about the end of the book and how it's definitely different. And to me, I don't want to say it placates this whole idea of faith versus belief or, or faith versus science kind of thing. To me, the, one of the most fascinating things about the book Contact is 
when she goes out, when Ellie goes out and she's there with these four other scientists and they go to this beach and there's a door that each one of them has to walk through and they walk through and they end up being with their loved one again. And so it doesn't have to be the father. It can be the husband, the wife, the sister, brother. It's got to be a man, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it can be these other things. And basically she is given a clue about how to prove all this stuff. And it is that, and this is Carl Sagan saying this, the artist's signature is out there. And what they do is they take pi and they figure pi out to however many freaking digits and then they convert it to like base 11 or something like this. I'm not going to – I'm butchering the details. But they find a pattern inside of pi. So it's that – it's not necessarily a completely irrational number. And to Ellie – and to a lot of other people, this was kind of, as Carl Sagan said, the artist's signature. This is to show that there is something out there that is greater than their understanding. And they touch on that a little bit in contact in the movie. This whole idea of it wasn't the Ted Arroway alien creature who created these wormholes that they've always been there and they're kind of more the caretakers that there was something so is that it almost kind of things? suggesting that there is like a creator it could be hmm. it could be and that's the thing though is that it leaves it up to your judgment so it doesn't shove it down your throat as hard as the movie did i think and i think that kind of vagary is the kind of stuff that you're talking about, Jamie, when it comes to we can't have that in these Hollywood films. We have to have things a lot more tidy. Yeah. Well, what's well. odd about the movie, in a way, and as I was watching, I'm like, you know, they don't, they didn't need to have the doubt or they didn't need to have the confirmation that 18 hours of static was recorded. It seems odd that both are there in a way. Because to me, I walk out thinking, well, obviously it happened because, you know, I'm kind of trusting, I guess, the, the viewpoint of the film and feeling like, okay, we have proof. 18 hours was recorded. Yeah, she went there. But the movie also is seems to still be trying so hard to suggest that, and I don't know, I feel like there's other clues saying it didn't happen. And I don't even know what those clues were, but a lot of other people say there were things that you could say, no, it's all of this was uh, different things that suggest that it could have all been in her mind. And even the timing of when everything, when they first hear the sounds, it's right after their funding gets cut and all of these things where maybe the whole thing is in her mind or something. But I don't know. And I don't know if it's being like bullheaded on my part to say, well, yeah, it happened. 18 hours of static. If I'm just clinging to this piece of evidence as proof that this is, this is what the movie said. Like I was saying earlier, the one thing that really gets me is when Palmer Joss assassinates Ellie mm-hmm. for her lack of faith. And I just wanted to read this just to give a little example, too, as far as the difference between the script and the film. You know, just um, this is Palmer Joss talking to the president, not Bill Clinton, but the female president. And after they have had all of these discussions, after he has spoken with Ellie a lot of times, um, 
and they're not romantically linked at this point, thank goodness, but he says to the president, I believe the person we're selecting will play a crucial role in humanity's future. I believe that when this person comes back, if they come back, they will be seen as being anointed by a higher intelligence and may well emerge as one of the most important people on earth. It may be true that Eleanor Arroway is not a perfect human being, but I believe her honesty, her purity, and her integrity to be unimpeachable, Ms. President. Aren't those qualities that this representative should embody? Are we seriously considering choosing a man who openly claims that he stands for nothing more than political self-interest to be the one person to represent the human race? Mm. He's on her mm. side the whole time. Yeah. And yes, he does. He says that he's going to miss her. And there is a moment later on where they kind of get together and he wants to like kiss her and stuff. And that's as far as their relationship goes. He wants to kiss her and she starts to push him away. And it is because of that whole, like, I can't get close to people kind of thing. So it's more her kind of, you know, like her issues and stuff, but whatever. And also if she is going to go off into space, but by that point, it's already been decided, you know, sorry, Ellie, we live in an unfair world. I wish it was a fair world, you know, Drumlin says, but it's not. Not, so see ya. But yeah. actually, I take it back. I think this is after sh- the Japanese um, ship is going. So there is a moment the night before she's supposed to take off. And that's when Palmer and she have what could be considered their romantic interlude. Which makes but a that's lot more she- sense in terms of timing rather than we're in the middle of a really high profile investigation of whether, you know, you're worthy of going to space or not. So let's meet in a public place and kiss and talk about it. I think that what you just read, I love that, and, and I do feel like that's something that might be missing from the from the film, obviously. But if we were to send a representative to space, uh, I, I do believe that uh, it would be insisted upon that it, that it be a Christian, because if if you look at our representation down here in the real world. I mean, it really is the final frontier. I mean, we we've, we hire people of different races. We we hire uh, gay and lesbians, but we just can't seem to elect uh, an atheist. That's something that this country just and, will not and do. We can't come anywhere near electing one. Right? Yeah. Has there ever been a viable presidential candidate that has not said, "I'm a Christian," and Democrat and Republican? Bernie Sanders is as close as we're going to get to electing a Jewish person anytime, you know, in this century. I don't know Ralph Nader's background, but while he was never necessarily a viable candidate, which is unfortunate. Obviously, we're all too young to remember this, but it was such a huge deal when John Kennedy was running for office because Uh everybody thought a Catholic can't be president because they're going to take their orders directly from the Pope. Yeah, which was always hilarious to me, because when I grew up, everybody I knew was Catholic. So I'm like, wait, there's no Catholic president? Just the one. Yeah. And he didn't last long. He didn't long. last long. I'm still surprised that uh, Nixon was a Quaker. I also yeah, forget that. that's true. Mm. And I hear that Grover Cleveland actually held blood sacrifices to Anubis. But I could be wrong on that. And uh, Donald Anubis Trump is the spawn, the spawn of Satan. So, I mean, it all, you know, there's a great variety there. One thing I noticed going back to um, 
Interstellar really quickly. So, Jamie, you talked about the whole like addressing the coldness and stuff, and of course, I was reminded a lot of 2001 while I was watching Interstellar, which to me, I think that's one of the big complaints about 2001 as well, is that it's very cold. And I think I've found out something. So if anybody, if there's any screenwriters or filmmakers uh, in the audience, you might want to write this down. I've discovered that if you want to make a serious science fiction film, you can have music in space, but you cannot have any sort of sound effects other than music in space. So any of those like, you know, like the, the whooshing of the, the ships or like clanking of airlocks coming together, any of that kind of stuff, just take that right out of the soundtrack, get your Zimmer, get your Silvestri, whoever you need to do, your, your freaking Strauss, but no noises otherwise. Isn't that like you know, a law of astronomy where the only sound you hear in space is, is a musical score? I think that was when uh, when Buzz Aldrin was circling around. He's just like, yeah, it's all right, but I wish I could change the channel. <laughs> you know, I think that's probably another thing that really bothered me about Interstellar. 2001's obviously, it's the, the beacon for the science fiction film genre. Um, and it's, a, it's obvious, and he made it clear in interviews, that he was emulating 2001 because that's, you know, the behemoth. But he was trying to make a, a 2001 with sentimentality, which reminds me of Rod Laurie trying to make a humanistic straw dogs. Like <laughs> at a certain point, you, you ain't making straw dogs if you're trying to make it humanistic. So it just did not feel right to me. But the, it, contact could contact going back to contact. It could have uh, benefited greatly from uh, more of the ambiguity that uh, defines 2001. Yeah, and the only reason why I'm putting these two films together, other than the Linda Ops co- uh, connection is more the Matthew McConaughey connection. And then also just that the whole time I was watching interstellar, I just kept thinking of other films and obviously contact was one of them. And I don't think it was just because of Matthew McConaughey. I saw much more of a, you know, like the, it almost like the self-fulfilling prophecy kind of thing. And I don't know, I had a real hard time with some of the stuff in interstellar as far as the logic of the film. And I know time now is all completely relative and, you know, like, and I guess that's too, like with contact, they really go to great lengths to talk about like, Oh, if you go out to this other planet, if 50 years will have passed for me, but for you, it'll only be two or any of this kind of stuff. Um, and with uh, God, that's like such the thing with Interstellar is like just this huge physics lesson, kind of, of you know, oh well, gravity's different on this planet. And each day is like a year, and or each hour is like a year. Yeah, they hammer it in. Oh God! And then the whole weird ending with the bookshelves, and I still I can't figure out. I can't figure out how you code. Morse code onto a watch. Yeah, I'm so glad. I thought, like, like I'm not the... I think science is fascinating, but I'm not that science and mathematically minded. And I really just thought, I'm like, I don't, like, 
Because I thought Inception was very clear, and I didn't understand people that thought it was confusing. Oh, they're in one world, now they're going deeper, now they're going deeper. Why, why are people saying this is the most confusing movie ever made? Very clear. But I'm telling you, I had no idea what was going on with that Tesseract stuff. And the only reason I knew what that was was because I'd seen Cube 2 back in the day. But that yeah. didn't make sense. Like, so I'm, I'm glad I'm not the only one that didn't get the science there. Like I said, I was so apathetic to Interstellar. That's what I meant. I didn't care. Right. What it, I, I didn't care enough to figure out what the hell it was doing. The Interstellar, I don't know. It was there. It was long. There were things about it that were interesting. Uh, and visually, a couple of pretty... Like, I like the robot. That was a pretty cool robot. I haven't seen that robot before. Um, but it did. It felt like it was... Nolan was kind of trying to channel this sentimentality that I don't think he's particularly good at. And it's there's he has his strengths and he has things that he really needs to improve. And then he has things that he probably just shouldn't try. I like the robot as well. And I think that the robots were the most interesting characters in the entire film. Which yeah. is also something they say about 2001. <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> yeah, computer. Yeah. Well, I can see in 2001... Like when it comes to Dave Bowman and just how controlled he is, and you know, Hal also having that kind of monotone to his voice, but then when Hal breaks down and and when he's being shut down, he definitely is much more human to me than he's more emotional than Dave. Uh, even though we know Dave is just one emotion in that place, just anger, you know, after everything that's happened, but. Like, when it comes to the robots in Interstellar, I mean, they have so much more personality and than any of the human characters. And I was just like, wow, this is... I mean, other than Anne Hathaway, who just seems to cry almost all of the time. She's a chick, dude. That's what we do. Yeah. I guess so. We screw things so. up looking for our lovers and we cry. Wow. Yeah, do? I couldn't believe that, man. After all that time... With Matt Damon down on the surface of that planet, growing all those potatoes and people shit and doing all that cool stuff. And then when the rescue party finally shows up, he tries to kill them all. I don't get it. <laughs> and the other thing I didn't get was how many ships did they have? Because all of a sudden, everybody's flying back to the space station. I'm like, wait, did he have a ship the whole time? Are you still talking about Interstellar? I'm still talking about another stellar. I know oh. you checked out. Okay, I, I, because for a second there, it sounded like you were talking about the Martian. They stranded on a planet growing potatoes. Uh, he's, that's an that's an odd bit of typecasting. Let me tell you. Yeah, if you ever want somebody stuck on a planet, do not cast Don Cheadle. Cast Matt Damon are, because are, is that a Mission to Mars reference? That is a Mission oh, to Mars yeah. reference. Yeah, high five. And I will say though. With all the shit that I've been talking about, Contact and yep. Interstellar this whole time, <laughs> both are better movers than Mission to Mars. Well, or, except oh, I, neither I, one I, sells Dr. Pepper or M&M's nearly as well. Uh, the product placement in that movie is incredible because it's like, how, how are you going to work this in? Oh, okay, Dr. Pepper saved the universe. We'll go with that. And Mission to Mars is, is, I know we're getting off topic, but I only watched it for the first time a few months ago. I was so fascinated by that movie because that movie starts out, I had no idea of its rating. I, I knew it was Ryan De Palma, so I figured I'm like, oh, it's kind of a hardcore sci-fi. And in what, in the first 20 minutes, there's a dude that gets ripped by 
a sandstorm in front of you where you see the limbs fall off, and then you find out it's like a PG-rated family film. Very baffling. I know we're talking shit about Brian De Palma, Jamie, so go ahead. I like Mission of Mars. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, I, I'm not a fervent defender of it, but uh, there, there are scenes in that movie that are quite haunting to me. I mean, I think the Tim Robbins scene is, is incredibly uh, effective. And I thought the ending, the ending of it was was bravely, uh, bravely done. But what would have happened if Ted Arroway had shown up in that Martian pyramid? Oh, sipping a Dr. Pepper. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Sparks. Open bag of M&M's like, hey, Ellie, want some? <laughs> How you doing, Sparks? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, let's take one more break and play a trailer for next week's show. What's her name? She's Helena. From which he cannot awaken. A dark obsession. You're everything to me. You're nothing to me. He cannot control. Nothing to me. You have the faintest idea how to make me feel good. Make me feel good. What is it going to take, Nick, for you to realize I don't want anything to do with you? She is a woman he will do anything to possess. You have done a very bad thing. Anything. You should see what he's done to me. I had to operate here in the lab. This is unheard of. Why isn't she in the hospital? I took care of it, Alan. What about your life? I love her, Alan. Beyond love. Take her. Beyond obsession. Take her. There hides something beyond reason. You should see what he's done to me. Just in time for Boxing Day, we've got a little gift to unwrap. It's Jennifer Lynch's Boxing Helena. Before we go, I want to thank this week's special guests, Ms. Obst, Mr. Hart, Mr. Showstack, and Mr. Fincher. And again, I do want to apologize. I was not trying to just shit all over this movie after everybody took such an amazing amount of time to talk to me about their experiences with this film, about working at SETI. This was not about tearing down the people that made this film at all. I just want that to be clear. This is just a discussion amongst three people about this film and just trying to get that out there. I think we all three have very different opinions about this film. So I just want to put that out there. And I I really do appreciate you guys, Emily and Jamie coming along. So Emily, I do want to ask you what kind of good stuff do you have going on over at the feminine critique? Uh, Well, we're, we just did an episode on the brood and the bad seed. 
which is a pretty fantastic double pairing. If you've never built them together, they work quite well together. Uh, And then come Christmas, we're going to do a couple of different Christmas-themed things. And my dear co-host, Christine, has never seen the original Silent Night, Deadly Night. Uh, So we are going to tackle that and the remake from a few years ago. And I am thrilled to hear somebody who's never seen it before experience that musical montage. I've never seen it either. Really? I, yeah. See, I grew up, like, we used to rent whichever one the video store had every year. So we would just cycle through them and then start over again. I just assumed everybody else did that, but apparently not. Who knew? I think I've only seen part of three because Monty Hellman directed it. He did, yeah. Yeah. So where can people go to find The Feminine Critique? Uh, I believe it is just thefemininecritique.com just to get our kind of feed. But if you go to iTunes and type in The Feminine Critique, we're all on there. On Twitter, we are at Feminine Podcast. Uh, and I, you can also find me at Deadly Dolls or my blog where I write about horror movies generally, which is deadlydollshouse.com. How about you, Jamie? What do you have going on over at Movie Geeks United? Well, we just came off a great month. We had uh, Paul Bettany and Anthony Mackey and Jackie O'Haley on the show in the past month. Um, And we're currently prepping, or let me say I'm currently prepping, a uh, Art of the Documentary series for January, and that'll involve uh, interviews with 25 uh, documentarians, including a couple that I'm sure will be nominated for Oscars uh, come January. Uh, These podcasts are going to be nominated for Oscars? No, 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 no. (laughs) A couple of the guests will be. And then then I'm also working on finishing our uh, episode on the Black Dahlia uh, murder. So it's going to be an eventful couple of months. Very cool. Now, you're definitely talking about the Black Dahlia De Palma film, too, correct? No, I'm talking about the the real case and and interviewing people that have... uh, written about her and investigated her case, her murder, and uh, that whole thing. I'm, I'm actually, movies themselves don't really play a part in this particular series. It's all about Hollywood unsolved murder. Oh, very cool. You know, I talked to the guy whose father was the Black Dahlia killer. You should look him up sometime. George Hodel? Yep. Yeah, we, I got an hour and a half with him. So He's quite a talker. <laughs> and let me tell you, this, this, this is the problem with this episode because there are three main theories about who killed the Dahlia and all three of them uh, theorists, all three of the theorists hate one another so to, to try to get all of them on the show I mean, I, I have to tread lightly <laughs> Yeah, uh, Hodel gave one of the keynote uh, addresses at the last NoirCon and I was with him for a while when he was talking about the Dahlia. And then when he started talking about how his dad was also the Zodiac, I kind of mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. lost it a little bit there. It's kind of with, you know, I had another experience with this when I did my show on The Shining. And I, I did my show on The Shining, like, it came out of a year before people knew what the heck, like, Room 237 was. And right. I, the last hour of the show included four guests giving their different theories about what the movie meant. American Indian, genocide, uh, the Holocaust, uh, fake the moon landing. Every single one of them tried to discredit the other, uh, especially the moon landing guy. Uh, 
And the funniest part was the guy that was trying to convince me that Stanley Kubrick's The Shining was about how he faked the moon landing. Uh, he he was criticizing the other theories, just saying that they're they're just ridiculous. I'm like, really? Those theories are ridiculous. But uh, people tuned in mostly uh, for the moon landing guy. They they wanted to hear the craziest theory. He has such a loyal following. It, it, you know, I had half of the people telling me it was such a mistake and a discredit to the film to put that moon landing guy on, and I had the other half of the audience telling me that's why I tuned in because I wanted to hear the moon landing guy. So. <laughs> yeah, I when Room Two Thirty Seven came out, I have to say that I was a little like down on the movie a little bit because I was just like, well, I've already heard all this stuff because I listened to the movie geeks United podcast and I am a fan of Rob Agar and mm. all of his stuff. I was like, okay, yeah, he goes beyond this into 2001 and other things. So he, but he, I, he I've come out my show. He, he refused to do my show. <laughs> He's agreed to do our Shining episode, and I'm very curious if he's actually going to come through with it, because he seems like he could be difficult. But I think uh, public shaming actually might help, because he finally responded to me when I posted my request mm. via Twitter, and people were retweeting it. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah. should, I should have tried to shame him. I, I, I took the wrong approach. <laughs> public shaming works quite well, Pretty for everybody except for Donald Trump. All right, and where can people find Movie Geeks United? The, uh, MovieGeeksUnited.net or BlogTalkRadio.com slash MovieGeeksUnited. Uh, MovieGeeksUnited is also a breath mint and an air freshener. I mean, it's, it's, all, it's all over. Wow. We just have an app. We don't have a breath mint or anything. i got to call the Altoids people and work on something. All right. Well, we will be sure to post the links to where you can keep up with Jamie and Emily, along with a lot of other good stuff over at our website, projection-booth.com. Stop on by, leave us some feedback, go on over to our Patreon, leave us some money, leave us a review at iTunes, leave your hat at the door. That's just a few more ways you can help us take over this world and the planet Vega as well.
show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.